week of non-stop partying guarantees to blow away so many brain cells you won't even remember your name. Oh, wow! Every one of these years, by sunrise, Easter morning, one time the whole school you're a bender. Welcome to spring break, the annual migration of the idiot. Welcome back to The Bloody Pit. I would tell you what number this episode is, but to be honest, I've lost track. I am Rod Barnett, and with me today is uh, my first pseudonymous, or pseudonymous, pseudonymous, my my first guest who refuses to go by his actual name. He's going to go by the pseudonym he uses for his own podcasts. He is calling himself Bobby Hazard, which is a strange combination of elements from... (laughs) from two different Southern-based television shows, and I kind of like it. Introduce yourself so that people can hear your dulcet tones. Hello there, I'm Bobby Hazard, and I am involved with Spring Break Forever, which is a series of podcasts that I do. Uh, some involve movies, a lot of, most of it involves music. Uh, we have a lot of fun. That's all I can say. And we drink a lot. <laughs> and no comment on the drinking, but we might be drinking now. At any rate. Maybe. Maybe, possibly. Tonight, we're here to talk about a movie that is known under a title that would lend itself very easily to being something that you would think of for Spring Break Forever. We actually covered it in one of our first episodes. This movie, uh, which we're calling Nightmare Beach, because that's how it's been released most of the time on video, uh, and just got released on Blu-ray over here in the States, actually. Yes. Uh, Nightmare Beach from 1989, um, also known under the title Welcome to Spring Break, which actually, both of those titles, I think, fit the film pretty effectively. Welcome to Spring Break maybe doesn't get across the idea of it being a horror film. Yeah, I agree with that, and uh, that, that's actually the first title I saw it under as well. When I used to subscribe to DVDs from Netflix, I saw that, and when I found out it was a Lindsay film, like, I don't know about this, so I need to yeah. watch it, because I've, I've always loved Lindsay. Well, so let's talk about the director or the supposed director. There's a lot of question involved about who actually was behind the camera on this. Umberto Lindsay is uh, the the director of record, but there's been a lot of talk over the years and a lot of kind of semi-confessions or explanations of behind the scenes going on, goings on, which means to, seems to indicate that uh, Lindsay may or may not have directed it. Uh, he was apparently on set during the production of the film. But uh, apparently it was someone else who actually directed the movie. From what I've gathered and from the commentary that's done on this new release, these are kind of the, the facts that I've gathered. He's first on board to direct a film. He definitely stayed on board for production. Uh, rumor was an advisory position. Lindsay said he got in a fight with the producer and dropped out. Um, there's also rumor that he did not like 
did not want to redo Seven Bloodstained Orchids, which this film was very similar to. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it really kind of is. <clears throat> There's also a rumor that Lindsay just did direct a film, and then he gave all the credit to Harry Kirkpatrick. And Harry Kirkpatrick is also a Lindsay pseudonym, is the other problem with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's where it gets really hairy, is if there is a real Harry Kirkpatrick, who's also known as James Justice, is James Justice the actual guy? Is, is, that, is that his real name? Or is Harry Kirkpatrick a pseudonym that both of them kind of played back and forth with both Lindsay yeah. and Joyce? It's, 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 it's or, I'm sorry, question. Justice. James Joyce. Well, there's a mistake. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's thought of that James Justice might actually be the other director. And it could also be split. Who knows? And it doesn't really matter in the, in the larger picture because what we have here is a very late entry in the uh, slasher genre. Actually, it's, it's, of course, an Italian-produced film, but it's during that weird period that I love so much when uh, Italian production companies were striking deals with uh, different cities and different areas of the country all over the states to uh, come in and shoot their movies there. And that's how you get a whole lot of movies during the uh, mid to late 80s to early 90s that were shot in Louisiana. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the earliest example of that would be something like The Beyond by Fulci. But lots of movies movies ended up that way. Killing Birds and a bunch of other uh, D'Amato films were shot. And they were were done through tax breaks and, and different financial incentives to get production companies over there because of the of course the the multiplier effect of of a having a, a film production going on in your area so that's how you end up with a lot of movies that got produced well i mean then, we, then you think think about troll too i mean that's in utah yeah. for god's sake <laughs> <laughs> land of the mormons produced troll too and that's because a bunch of italians got some massive tax incentive or, or financial break to film a movie there so. now, now one thing i want to comment is with a lot of these italian productions being in the U.S., as it progresses through the '80s, and they keep doing that, you it, and, it, and even in a movie like this, you'll see the American influence really take over those films. Yeah, as yeah. opposed to when they started in the '80s, it was definitely more Italian, mm-hmm. and then by the time it gets to the '80s and the '90s, it's definitely more American. And a part, and a big part of that was the bottom had dropped out of the Italian movie industry, especially the exploitation horror yeah. genre. By the mid '80s, and so one of the things that they that they knew would help them sell their movies worldwide was that if it could be sold as an American-made film to begin with. So shooting in the in in this country, and employing mostly American actors at the same time made it very easy to pretend, hey, 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 this is this all this thing takes place in Florida. It's shot in Florida, mostly American actors, and in this case, I mean, almost all American actors are on screen. There are a few exceptions, but what you end up with is a, a very weird combination of Italian exploitation elements and kind of the tastes and ideas that usually were built into the way those things were written because the scripts came over here. Yeah. The, the scripts were concocted, the, the plots come up with, and really the changes that got made on some of the productions were generally the ones that were made on set where you're trying to make the dialogue sound less, less like it was translated by a very poor computer program. So in the instances where you see one of these movies where the dialogue sounds more natural, and I would say that actually the dialogue in this film is actually pretty good because it sounds like it sounds like human speaking instead of you know a computer program trying to figure out what Spanish and, and Italian should sound like in, in Florida. Um, but by the late 80s, a lot of few, a lot fewer of these movies were getting produced, and the, the trick they were using was trying to find a 
a way to keep the budget down, and a way to make them appear more sellable overseas by looking more and more American. And uh, that, that pays off in a lot of weird ways. <sighs> there are a lot of fans, and I used to be one of them, even fans of the Europe, Euro horror genre, who really cast a baleful eye at the stuff produced in the late 80s and early 90s. And I'll admit, I don't think most of the stuff produced by the end of the decade in the early 90s stands up to the best of the stuff produced in the early 80s and the late 70s. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'll definitely agree with that. I mean, you know, like you said, after the Italian film industry kind of... Kind of exploded. Kind of exploded. Um, it, there's definitely a lack of, like, good movies. I mean, I'm not saying this is a bad movie because I actually quite enjoy it. I do, too. And I've just had to watch it three times in the last month, which is a record <laughs> for me. <laughs> but um, it's... Definitely not like it was. I mean, you might take somebody like, say, Argento, who's still making good movies up yep. till, at least in my opinion, the mid nineties. I agree. That. I agree. After I think. That, I think. Sten- well, I think. St- I think Stendhal is his last great film. I was going to say that. That's my yeah. cutoff point. After that, yeah, so Again, good- there's some there's some good stuff in there, but not as much as you'd wish. Yeah. Um. But yeah, this uh, there, there's still some fun movies. I mean, Troll Two. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect example, well, but well, it's just I, not I would, the same. Well, that's just it. Over the years, my feelings about the stuff produced in the late 80s, along with a movie like this, has completely changed to the point where I actually enjoy a lot of the stuff produced in the late 80s. I just have to understand what I'm looking at. For instance, yeah. all those movies produ- produced uh, by Joe D'Amato's company, Filmarage, the ones that he was he was just putting money into and producing and, and bringing writers and directors in, and they were all most of them were at least partially shot here in the States. So you yeah. get things like Ghost House and Witchery and all that kind of stuff. Uh, most of which are now surprisingly available on Blu-ray over here from like Screen Factory. When you start to when you start to get into those, yeah, man, it's real hit or miss. But I really enjoy them. Even the misses, I really enjoy because, man, they're in there swinging. You know, they're yeah. in there trying, and that's one of the things. Like by the time Nightmare Beach, the movie we're talking about tonight, but the, the time this thing came out, not only had the slasher genre. Died. <laughs> the slasher genre was essentially dead by like eighty four, maybe eighty five. I mean, it was it was still chugging along because they're so damn cheap to make that you're going to get a return on your dollar. You just weren't going to make blockbuster money. You weren't going to take, you know, you weren't going to make ten times your investment. You were maybe going to make three or four times your investment. And hey, that's perfectly good. That kept the genre alive and still keeps it alive to a degree. And kids like me were what were keeping that that. A lot yeah. of in the video stores, it's like I got. I started getting into horror movies, especially slasher films in '86, and that's all I was looking for was that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and there are a lot of them out there. And by '86, they were still making them. It just uh-huh. the, the heyday. It, it had peaked and was now definitely on the decline as far as the number of productions because they had become less profitable. Yeah. So by the time you get to Nightmare Beach in 1989, you're looking at a movie that as as. <laughs> I'm try, I always try to think of the best way to put this. Um, they're trying to find new ways to bring a level of creativity to the slasher formula to keep everybody interested because they're assuming anybody going to see this movie either in a theater or renting it on videotape, they're going to already assume you've seen two to three dozen of these damn things. So you're aware of the formula. So they know that they need to, A, kind of adhere to it, kind of give you the multi-death stalk-and-slash formula that keeps the people who love these kind of movies coming back for more. But they also know that if they don't add something interesting to it, then 
they're going to get bored. The audience will get bored. They might they might dislike it. They might talk bad about it. They're not going to rent it over and over again. It's not going to become that kind of thing that they want. Now, I don't think that by this point, anybody was still thinking they were going to create a franchise monster, <laughs> yeah. a franchise, a, fran- a franchise, you know, villain. I don't. I think the days of that everybody knew was pretty much over. You weren't you weren't creating another Jason. It wasn't happening. Now that being said, what's what's interesting about this movie is there's such a mishmash of different genres all in there. Yes. You have hints of it being a supernatural film. Yes. You have the biker vengeance film. Right. You have giallo elements. Then you mm-hmm. have the the slasher film, the spring break movie with the comedy elements. Yep. I mean, it could be traced back to like American comedies from the early to mid '80s, you know, or mm-hmm. even in the late '80s, they're still doing stuff like that. So, well, you yeah. could you could argue there were elements of something as early as like American Graffiti in this. Yeah, yeah, very true, very true. But to me, the overwhelming thing that keeps coming back again and again is how they try really hard to stamp the template and structure of Jaws onto this thing. Yes, and that was one thing that was discussed in the commentary too. It's a very similar thing, whereas. There's these killings going on in town, the town, the the local government, mayor, whatever you want to call it, is trying to hide it. Right, trying to do everything. As a matter of fact, going way out of his way to do illegal things to hide it. Yes, yeah. and so uh, because, all because well, we can't. You know, this is spring break. This is that's that's what this city uh, thrives on. If we drive those people away, then you know we're cutting heavily into our into any chance we have to be a, a functioning city. Got to have that tourist money. Exactly. And if that doesn't scream Jaws to you, then I don't know what does. If, if it doesn't scream Jaws to you, then you haven't seen Jaws. <laughs> or you're not, you, you miss the overt two or three jokes within the film leading you directly to think about Jaws, like the, the jokester character who, you know, wears the, the fake fin and almost gets himself shot by a cop. <laughs> It's so stupid. Which play, which I love. It plays both. It plays as two or three different elements of all these yeah. things that we're talking about. It plays as you got the prankster character doing something stupid, and then you've got the terrified cop who's willing to shoot at this shark because he's afraid that if he doesn't do something, then some of these people in the surf are going to get eaten. It's like right out of freaking Jaws. And then you've also got the whole idea of this being a spring break thing and therefore jokes of this type are going to be sprinkled throughout it, which they are. So you're like with that one, it's like. You're hitting like three birds with one stone just by doing that one scene. And that's cool. That's fine. That worked because this really is an amalgam of a bunch of different things. And it just becomes a question of, is it entertaining enough to keep you from, at least while you're watching it the first time going, okay, that's a direct rip from this. And that's exactly what they're referencing there. Or is it just that by mentioning these things and by kind of bringing them up, does it kind of just make you smile and enjoy it a little bit more because that's where I am with, with a movie like this where Same if, here. If, if it's I mean come on this thing's a tight 90 minutes what like an hour 32 something like that I believe so yeah so this thing it doesn't waste its time it doesn't spend a, it, it, it gives you just enough uh, character <laughs> just enough just enough character and, and, and uh, depth on just who these people are so that you're aware of who the bad guys are and who you should who you should be sympathetic to. That's that's really all they care about. It's just you know we got we got good guys, we got bad guys, we got people who are doing things, we got people who are questionable. We've got a lot of different suspects for who the killer might actually be, and we move on from there. Well, it's it's, it's a fun party movie. I mean, you could have people over at the house and you could be partying while you're watching this movie, or you could be watching by yourself and you'll still be enthralled with it. It's just a fun movie. You don't look at it like you're not going to look at it like eight and a half. 
you're not going to sit. You're not going to sit and study it, and 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 it's not, it's not the kind of movie that's going to have you thinking about it a week later about oh man, that's a really tur- that's a that's a cogent statement about the the way we live life and think about other people. No, that's not what this movie is. This movie is here to do simple things. It's here to completely entertain you for about ninety minutes. And not let you know. Not try to keep your 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 attention from wandering too far off of the screen, and it does a pretty good job with that. But even if your attention does wander, say like you're actually in a party situation, people hanging out talking, it'll still draw you back in with different things. Yeah, yeah, and boy, does it have a lot of different elements. <laughs> yes. Before we get to a discussion of uh, kind of going through the story itself, I, I have one question. Um, I only recently saw this movie. Mm. I only recently saw this a few months ago. My question to you is. Uh, something that surprised me. When you first saw it, do you remember if you had any inkling of who the murderer actually turned out to be? I honestly had no clue because there was just that whole supernatural element yeah. and herring thrown in. And I was totally clueless. So by the time you actually get to who the murderer is, you're like, wait, what? But then what what kills me is I had the, okay, I had the same experience. So the first time I watch it and you get to where the murderer is, as soon as he reveals himself, you're thinking, oh, Oh, okay. Well, that does make sense. And then the next time you watch the movie, you you just your your brain was skipping all over all the hints that are laid out in the movie, all the things that make sense about this person being the killer. You're just not paying that that much attention to because the movie is throwing so many damn little subplots and sub stories and red herrings and different distractions to keep you from really thinking too hard about who the murderer might be. And like I say, it's it moves quickly. There's there's something going on all the time. Yeah. And uh, I mean, as as we go through this, we'll make note of how many little sub characters there are that maybe only have like three or four scenes in the movie, but that are just those things that the script keeps throwing in there to keep you from paying too much attention to the mystery, so that you can't think about it too much. So so would you say this is this is a dumb movie done intelligently? <laughs> that is actually a pretty good way to do it. That's that's a good statement of this film and its and its kind of modus operandi. This thing actually serves as a good template. There are better ones, obviously. Yeah. But this is a good template for how to make one of these movies and to actually keep an audience engaged, even an audience that might walk in and kind of feel a little a little negativity toward the genre itself, or kind of think that they they've seen enough of these, even if they feel like they maybe seen enough of these that this really doesn't have anything to bring to the ta- bring to the table that's really going to surprise or shock them. And it doesn't really, I don't think it really surprises or shocks much, except in the way in which it does manage to keep you distracted from thinking too much about the mystery. And then once you once it's revealed. The mystery actually makes sense. It, 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 there's a there's a through line in the entire movie that you should have thought about, but you just were so distracted by all the damn things being put in front of you. Yeah, it's not one of those head slapping moments where you're like, "Oh God, they really did this." No, you're like, <laughs> "No, it makes Wait, sense." It makes okay, yeah, I, I, I can see this now. Yeah, and, and and once it's revealed, there's a kind of a part of you as you look as you kind of look back over the film mentally, going, "I should have seen this. I should have realized this. You know, this is this is a little obvious." If I just paid attention, but there's always something keeping you distracted. So, what we'll do, uh, we'll we'll be interrupting ourselves many times to talk about uh, Umberto Lindsay and the various ways in which this film got made and some of the actors along the way. But I think what we'll do is we'll take a quick break and then come back and then start going through the the plot of the story. I don't think we'll spoilerize this because this movie did just come out on Blu-ray over here in the states. 
uh, with a, a fascinating commentary track you're telling me from uh, from Sam um, Sam Deegan is Sam Deegan De- is yes. that her name? I, she, I, I might be saying it wrong. Uh, I, I might be saying her name. I mean, yeah, I might be saying her name. Anyway, Sam, we we mean no disrespect, and <laughs> I am a fan. And you apparently love the commentary tracks. Oh, I, I, I was I I never heard of her before, but I was very impressed with the commentary. And if you're buying this movie, I just highly recommend listening to it because she puts a lot of good insight into it, and also talks about Lindsay's career and makes different comparisons to different movies before and after this film were made. Um, very fascinating. I was just like, wow, they put a lot of effort into this. Or uh, she did. And one thing I was going to say is uh, at least you didn't butcher her name as bad as you did Kayla's. <laughs> I'll never... I'm just going to have to apologize to Kayla in person. I, I, now the, the author of House of Psychotic Women and I, I I've got I've to apologize to her one day. Yeah, I just heard someone pronounce her name again the other day and I was just like, oh God, we so, we so badly fucked that up. Oh God. It just you know, living in Austin, I was friends with her, and that's the only reason I don't have her na- pronounce her name right. So, <laughs> I, I I ran into her last time I was in Austin because she was visiting the same time I was, and I told her that you guys had accidentally butchered her name. And she just thought it was funny. <laughs> oh, thank God, because unfortunately that goes down forever. That's on a freaking Blu-ray commentary. <laughs> I mean, what can you say? I mean, we're covering the film she took the title of her book from, so of course we're going to reference her work. And uh, we, Troy and I both butchered her name horribly. But folks, I tell you what, we'll take a quick break, come back, and then start going a little in a little detailed way through uh, Nightmare Beach. Hey, I'm so glad you could make it. Welcome to my little podcast here, Bill Watches Movies. I'm Bill Mize, I'm the host and creator, and I'll be helping you today. Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography. And finally, at the end, we sprinkle just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. Now, we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now, to learn even more, you can always go to our website, BillWatchesMovies.com, for show notes, blog posts, resources, and just general dorkitude. Now I'm also on Twitter. Just search for Bill Watches Movies. I'm pretty easy to find, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks again for checking us out. Relax, enjoy the music, and then enjoy the show. werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real, but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. 
Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Biker parking only. Get a grip. Chill out. Look, we don't want any trouble, all right? Edward Diablo Santor, the state stands ready to execute you as charged. Do you have any last words? May the Lord have mercy on you. God! God! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Some drunk breakers. Thinking it's a fun trick. Sick Diablo's biker buddies. Vowed he was coming back. Assaulting an officer with a deadly weapon. That's cause to blow your fucking pretty head off. Who killed my friend? Who? Nightmare Beach, a movie that may have been directed by Umberto Lindsay, but we have our doubts. <laughs> We're serious Nobody's doubts. Nobody's 100% sure. <laughs> All right, the movie opens with the execution, the, the prison execution of a motorcycle gang member named Diablo. Uh, you know when your movie starts with the, uh, the electrocution by the state of a really bad guy who goes to the electric chair claiming still that he is innocent, that revenge is in the air. What, all that and the smell of cooking flesh. I mean, there's that. I mean, both of these things are in the air, but you know what I mean. So, and a very awkward sequence to start the credits, where it just freeze frames on the dead body of the killer. Yeah. Then you hear the acapella version of "Don't Take My Heart" by <laughs> Kristen. Let's talk for a moment before we even get to this. Let's look over the opening credits. Okay, the the opening credits, uh, at least on the Blu-ray, have the Nightmare Beach title, not the not the Welcome to Spring Break title. Yeah. And so, I, I think it's the same thing, but just a different title. Yeah, I think everything else is Pro- exactly probably the same. so, probably so. But it's all footage that that I doubt they shot. They may have bought all this footage that's of uh, Daytona Beach because. Right under, I mean, it, it, it's it's almost as if they were trying really hard to to make sure that you saw this sign. Is on screen right when the title Nightmare Beach comes up, you can see the sign right underneath Beach that says "Welcome to Day- Welcome to Daytona Beach." So when I first saw this movie, I thought, okay, so they're nailing this down. They're saying we're in Daytona Beach, but then as the movie goes on, 
and actually the police department is the Manatee Beach Depart, you know, yep. police department, which is another area of Florida. And then later on, we've got uh, the uh, Reverend's daughter. Her character is wearing a Venice Beach T-shirt, and it's like Venice Beach is in California. What the fuck are they doing here? And I was watching the movie actually before you came over a couple hours before you came over, and I noticed there's a sign that quickly passed by that said Lauderdale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because I think they shot almost all of this in Fort Lauderdale, if not, if, maybe not all of it, but big chunks of it, definitely. Where was it that I we were we were messing each other the other day and we figured out where they shot it because I sent you a screen cam, a screen grab of it. Um, I thought it was Fort Lauderdale, but I know that some some no, of it's, it, it's near Bradenton. Oh, is it Sarasota? That's right. Okay, okay. So it was actually Manatee Beach. Manatee Beach, which is south of Sarasota and Bradenton. Okay, I uh, actually went there a few times when I was young because I had an aunt that had a house there. Now she had like some kind of. I don't know, a house that she rented or something. We just uh-huh. go in during the summer and visit it. All I remember is a comic store and getting uh, <laughs> getting some X-Men buttons I still have in Howard the Duck magazine number one. <laughs> That's all I remember. These are all good memories. Yeah. Unlike, say, being executed <laughs> in prison. It's probably not a good memory for anybody. <laughs> well, like I say, he's protesting his innocence to the last and he, he, he swears revenge. There's a there's a cop there gleefully watching this execution. And the cop is named Stryker. S-T-R-I-C-H-E-R, which is a weird way to spell that name. It's a very weird way to... Plus, he's played by John Saxon at his most villainy. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> yeah. What I love about John Saxon... John Saxon, of course, great actor in God knows how many movies, how many television episodes... The first place I remember seeing John Saxon was on The Six Million Dollar Man and that two-parter where he's the, oh, yeah. the bad guy cyborg. Oh, I, oh, remember I totally well. forgot about that. Oh, man, that's definitely the first place I ever saw John Saxon. But Saxon is awesome, of course. Most people who are in the slasher, who are fans of the slasher genre are going to know him from uh, two, uh, or no, actually say three of the better Nightmare on Elm Street films for his oh, iconic yeah. role. I mean, but he's been in a zillion. I mean, he's been in, he was in a great Bava film in the 60s, for God's sake. John, especially in Italian cinema, John Saxon has been everywhere. He's worked for practically everybody. Oh, yeah. Argento and, and Tenebra and God, just so many. Yeah, exactly. John Saxon is somebody, he's a great actor. He's somebody you can count on and he does the job well. And he's great in this. He oh, is, yeah. he is someone. He's a villain because he is a bad guy, and he has, not spoiling anything because this comes out in the next 10 minutes of the film, trust me, he has framed this biker who gets executed for this murder. Yeah. And, you know, without any compunction about doing it whatsoever, he doesn't care. He doesn't care that the guy was actually innocent. It doesn't matter to him. No, I'm going to have to be honest. I, I think John Saxon is probably, the acting-wise, the best thing about this movie. Oh, I agree. He Completely. just comes yeah. off as incredibly, incredibly unlikable. Yeah. Incredibly sleazy, and I love that. Mm-hmm. He's definitely not as um, his acting isn't as canned as some of the rest of the acting is. Well, some of these are some of the people in this in this film. Some of the actors are young actors who obviously don't have a whole lot of uh, experience in front of the camera, and they're very they're very much trying their best. But at this point, their best ain't good enough in a lot of cases. And it's good that the film doesn't ask some really difficult things from them. Uh, it asks some difficult things of Saxon, and it asks some difficult difficult things of Michael Parks. Luckily, yeah. they're veteran actors; yeah, they can get, they can do this yeah. stuff. That's okay. Now, I, real quickly, and we'll probably get into her later. Sarah Buxton, one of the main stars of, of the movie. You know what her movie, the movie she did before this was? No, what? Lesson Zero. 
She was in less than zero. I don't know what she did. I just I didn't even know her film career until I looked it up. Like, wow, I did not recently. know that. Yeah, she was in less than zero before this. Was she was she a soap opera act? Is she the soap opera actress? Yeah. What what soap opera was she in? You would ask me now. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean I didn't mean to I didn't mean to stump you. Uh, short term short term memory isn't what it used to be. I looked it up three hours ago and I forgot. <laughs> I don't think it matters. But what does matter... Like anybody that listens to this is going to care about a soap opera. (laughs) Hey, hey. I spent an entire summer suckered completely into General Hospital. I was a young man and it was before I had a VCR. So you must cut me a lot of slack on this. I watched some soap operas when I was very young. The one piece of information that we do get across here besides the screaming for revenge against uh, the cop striker is... This, this guy, before he's executed, does look directly at this woman who's the sister of the victim of this murder. Gail. Gail, played by Sarah Buxton, who, and says straight to her, I did not kill your sister. And, you know, let's be honest. This guy's about to get strapped in an electrical chair. <laughs> it's He's got no reason to still be protesting his innocence. He's about to die. So... I would. I, I honestly have a tendency to believe people at that point because what they, they've got, got nothing to lose. They got nothing to lose. They're about to die, <laughs> so that's that. That kind of strikes her strongly and uh, starts the movie off on its rather interesting trip down the who kill who's the actual murderer because that introduces the mystery right up front. Yeah. Because we're pretty sure just from the reaction of the cop that this guy didn't kill this woman. And then as we are introduced to the fact that more murders begin to happen soon after, they seem to be linked to that murder. It seems that we may be in a, in the boat of a real ongoing serial killing mystery here. So we already talked about the credits obviously being footage of Daytona Beach. But what about the music? Oh, I don't really know much about this. Well, there's, Okay, this thing is packed. First of all, the, there's, there's some score... Simonetti by Claudio Simonetti uh, from Goblin of Goblin fame, of course. But there are a just ton of freaking songs in this thing. Uh, most of them bad, but most of them still kind of fun. It doesn't matter that they're bad. It's that, that I mean, until we get to the to the sexy saxo synth band at the end I, that I, that I cannot that I cannot tolerate. But nevertheless, that is also the same person uh, that is performing during the credits. That is Kirsten. Uh, Kirsten. Kirsten. That's, that's what it's listed as in the credits. Um, I tried to research all this by going through Discogs, looking on yeah. Wikipedia if I could. I can't really find out much about these bands. Uh, Kirsten, the only thing I know is she was produced, uh, the song, her songs were written and produced by an Australian singer named Greg Bonham. I know nothing about him, but that's just all I can tell you about that. Really the only, just want to make sure, really the only known band on here um, that anybody would recognize, especially if you lived in the 80s, was a rough cut that is a song called Dynamite. And her name is actually misspelled in the credits because uh, <laughs> cut is spelled with two T's. That's what I was about to say. It was spelled like two T's, like rap was spelled with two T's, right? No, uh, this song was produced by Dio. I know, I noticed that in the credits. He yeah. even gets a credit in the movie as producing this song. Rough cut were actually, uh, I like them. I, I have at least one of their records in my record room. I've, I've always liked them. They're, you know, typical hairband of that period of time they yeah. had a moderate success there is still a name that's remembered but i mean you know they're not poison they're not motley <laughs> crew they're just one of those many bands that that maybe had like a hit song on mtv and then were kind of, kind of disappeared i think they maybe had three albums in the 80s okay i like them uh, but a lot of these other songs are done by bands that i've never heard of in my life um, Rondinelli did three songs. Okay. Uh, Bad Love So Right, Man and Nasty, Fear No Evil. 
if they're the band I think they are, it's a hard rock band that was started by a drummer. It was his last name. He was in Riot. He was in Rainbow. He was in Black Sabbath at different periods of time. So he's like a known hard rock drummer. Um, okay. One weird thing about this, and I'll stop right here and tell you, if you're going to try to look for this music, you cannot find it. It's on none of these songs, even the Rough Cut song, nothing I can find. Which is bizarre because you have got a lot of resources for tracking down music. Yeah, and it, I was—I at least thought I could find the Rough Cut song on something, but there is nothing. That's it's nuts. not on any of their albums. Uh, they had an anthology they put out, not on anything like that. Uh, Rondinelli, I just looked through the songs for what I could find, and I didn't see them anywhere, so... Difficult. Difficult. Very oh, odd. Here's another one. Derek St. Holmes did two songs. Derek's, yeah. Now, what was it about that name that rang a bell, other than it sounding like something out of Spinal Tap? He was in Ted Nugent. Ah, okay, okay. He has been in other stuff, too, but uh, he did Eye of the Hunter and I Know How to Rock, which is a hilarious name. <laughs> And uh, he worked on these songs with a guy named Ron Bloom, who also worked on, uh, I don't know if he worked on the Rondinelli songs, but the the last band that we're about to go over, um, he worked on that song too. Rock Like an Animal by Animal. The most notable thing about Animal is it was R- Randy Piper's band from Wasp, I guess maybe after he quit Wasp. Weird thing about that band, they never put out anything until the 2000s. They ever release an album? Nothing. Not that I know of. Well, then this has got... It, whatever came out in the 2000s has to have been a reconstituted band. And surely they didn't function that entire period of the 90s without... It, without might, have, it might have been a band he had and nobody bit. Maybe. Um, I think I actually picked out where the song was in the movie, too. And it's not a bad song. Randy Piper, I thought, was a decent enough guitar player. I mean, once he left the band Blackie Lawless and Wasp left the bass and went back to guitar, which he, he was a songwriter anyway. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't even know why he left the band, to be honest. Huh. Well, well, my question becomes, this movie has so many songs in it. Yeah. So many songs are wedged into this. We have at least two wet t-shirt contest sequences that they ladle one of these songs over. Uh, and not that, not that I'm against a wet t-shirt contest. No, I'm not. But... <laughs> <laughs> but... That seems just a, a you know they, they just essentially use you know raw footage of that edit it together interestingly enough and then have one of these songs playing over it and the thing you know, the songs aren't written for this particular part of the film or anything like that but it just seemed another way to keep the movie you know first you get a little you know you get a little public TNA going on in a wet T-shirt contest and then you have these these metal these you know, essentially hair metal songs ladled over everything and that for them to have so many songs in this movie. I was really surprised because on my second time through, I started to realize just how many songs were in the movie. It's a lot of songs. It is a lot. But you have to think, like, especially in that era of the 80s, it may have started, and if I'm looking back, I could be wrong. I mean, there's a bunch of movies that did, like, random songs in them before that, but, like, horror movies, I think the first one you can cut that kind of stands out to me that really did it was Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. Then you go to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, and pretty much it... In the at least in the eighties, not the scores, but the actual soundtrack albums they sold would all have random bands on it. Yeah. So it's kind of something. It was it was a trend that was going on at least up until maybe the early nineties, like at least past Shocker, I think. Okay. So it, it's it's kind of the trend of the time, but I mean they really had a bunch of I hate to say it has beens <laughs> or kind of wases or never wases or never wases. 
Oh, and I forgot to mention one more band, uh, Juanita, Do What You Do. No idea. What's no idea what that is or where it came from? Or... No, no well, idea. What's interesting is what I kept feeling at different points in the movie, and this is probably because of a recent rewatch of this movie, it was during this period of time that Argento, whose films were still big box office in the 80s, yeah. this is when he started incorporating heavy metal music into the kind of the chase, the chase sequences of his movies. And, of course... Some of that music was made was made by Claudio Simonetti, and there are points in this movie where it's clearly Simonetti's movie. I mean, I'm, Simonetti's music that's playing over some of these sequences, some of the chase sequences, and some of the sequences that are you know they're using this music to kind of build up as more exciting than it might necessarily be. And I hate, and, to, I hate to say it, but uh, for all the chase sequences, it is the same song. But it's like the best song that he did. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, yeah. it's a it's a good piece for the soundtrack. But it sounds it, like Iron Maiden. Yeah, and it and it has energy, and it really and it and it brings what you're looking for. But it's just so strange to to notice. I don't I don't know if Argento started the trend because the Italian guys. He's phenomena, the Phenomena was the first place he started doing that. Yeah, and that was was eighty four. 85, I think. So, and it's after that, and, and of course, so eighty five is Return of the Living Dead, where the music was just completely incorporated into the story. I mean, it was part of the characters and what they listened to, yeah. and it was kind of part of the kind of ethos of how they built the entire the entire scenario. Yeah. But um, in, in other words, that's the perfect example where all the music yeah. actually fits and has a reason for being where it is. As opposed to it just being dropped in to get the the blood pumping, which is in a lot of cases exactly what's happening in this movie, where oh, yeah, absolutely. it's being it's being just ladled over scenes because it's got you know a certain amount a certain beat and you know we can we can bring up the volume just a tad and it and it gets kind of the juices flowing for whatever reason they need it to do need need it to and not meaning to jump ahead, but there is one awkward sequence where um, they're actually it's it's. Uh, when the bikers beat up Rivera, yeah. where the animal song is playing, and then it kind of fades out, and the Simonetti song fades in when the killer appears, and it seems like a, to me it seemed like awkward transition. Well, I mean, there were a lot of there are a lot of awkward transitions in movies that use this kind of strange combination of of a score actually written for the movie and songs that are kind of trying to be incorporated together. And well, sometimes they kind of crash. Sometimes they do crash together, and it just feels it feels awkward, and it feels as if somehow the tone has changed in the wrong way. Uh, well, low budget film too. Exactly. Yeah. Where you know you're going to get maybe one or two passes at this, and you go on. Credit our hero Man- Manicek, 
and his buddy Rivera yeah. show up in a Chrysler LeBaron. <laughs> One of the boxiest cars ever built. I had a buddy when we, when we were like in high school that was obsessed with Chrysler LeBarons. I have no why? idea why. I, I can't tell you. It, it, it's just something that sticks out in my mind. So I, every time I see one, I recognize it immediately. I can't tell you what any damn car looks like, but I see a LeBaron. I'm like, that's ah, a Chrysler LeBaron. <laughs> they didn't make those damn cars anymore, but that's what they're driving. Well, yeah. I got—I got to tell you, this—the—the the stench of the late '80s is all over this fucking oh, movie. Absolutely. I mean, this—this this, from the clothing, all the fashions, all the fashions. It's madness. It's—it's it's the late '80s. It's like an entire decade knew it was over, but didn't know how to how to how to how to hang itself in the closet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's just, there's so many things wrong. All the cars, all the all the all the cars of recent vintage, all look like things that should just go ahead and just march themselves toward the scrapyard and be done with it. All the fashions are all like verging on a mistake or a mistake, but somebody kind of tried to fix the mistake. It's just oh, it's so bad. What we don't have is since we're past the mid '80s. We luckily don't have any. I didn't spot any examples of the gigantic, insane hair problems that got so bad in the early to mid '80s, where women suddenly thought that perhaps if I if I induce flies to be caught in my hair, that will somehow make me more attractive. Uh, there's still some bad hair in there. Yeah, but not not, not the big poofy giant. No, things. no, uh, not not as bad. Yeah, not as bad. That's yeah, true. that's that stuff is still going on until the mid '90s. That's what. I, Early '90s was such a weird period of time for everything because it's like we're trying to we're trying to change. And we're, it's, we're, it's, it's like we're suffering from the '80s hangover. Yeah, and that '80s hangover it hung around for about till about '93, '94, and yeah. finally the decade kind of found its footing. And it still wasn't really sure what it should do, but at least it was changing in a direction that didn't feel like an embarrassment. And then by the late '90s, it had become its own form of embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> you would like it did either. I mean, come on. I mean, all I have to do is mention new metal, and you know exactly what I'm talking about with the late '90s, early 2000s. Well, metal in general in the '90s suffered a lot, and and, and new metal was kind of the uh, the icing on the ass cake. <laughs> That's just the best way to put it. There's a reason I didn't like metal in the 90s, and it was the fucking 90s. That's why. (laughs) Well, one thing I want to... While we're talking about the credits, because, my God, save us. We haven't made it past the fucking credits. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) There is footage of an accident, an actual... An actual, what appears to be real accident take... That that is the aftermath of of the person who was harmed in the accident being loaded into a fucking uh, ambulance... And I, I honestly, while watching it, I kept thinking to myself, is this legal that they shot this shit on the street and put it in a movie? Because that's somebody who, I, I mean, seriously, that's an actual, the aftermath of an actual accident. And we're seeing it in, in the credit sequence of Nightmare Beach. What the fuck? Yeah, I put a death by go-kart on that one. <laughs> is that what that was? Yeah. Hey, look at that thing you got hit by. Oh, God. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. I think my favorite thing is, you know, they do that stock footage of that, and then they show the guys in LeBaron driving up, looking up, going, what's, oh, what's stopping going and, on? Stopping and looking at it, and it's and, like, and first re- of all, we know you're not looking at that. <laughs> and the reaction faces, especially for... Um, the main character, Manichek, he does a lot of these reaction faces. The actor, actor's name is Nicholas Detoth. And uh, he's, for, for somebody who's on screen as much as he is, he's just talented enough to get it by, but not talented enough to make you remember that he should be better. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a sad fact. He's okay. I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, he, does, he does not embarrass himself. No. He conducts himself about as well as I think he could probably get away with. 
But here's the weird thing about Nicholas de Toth, the lead character in this film, Skip Benichek, the failed court, the quarterback who fucked up the Orange Bowl by throwing an interception just before coming to spring break to try to forget this. Here's the weird thing that I kept noticing and it finally hit me. If you just watch his mouth and the way he speaks and the way his mouth moves, it's exactly the same mouth and the way he speaks. It's exactly the same Christian Bale. He's His mouth and the way he speaks, the way he moves his mouth, I swear to you, he's got the exact same mouth as Christian Bale. It is fucking oh. creepy. Creepy. I did not notice that. Don't no, Try not to notice it. Because then you'll never get it out of your head. Sorry, podcast listeners. <laughs> but Nicholas Toth's mouth is exactly the same as Christian Bale's. We've, we've already fucked this up for you. <laughs> Probably so. How many podcasts have you spent this long on the fucking credits? I just want to know. <laughs> uh, well, if you, wanna, if you want to count the Nashi cast, probably more than a few. But <laughs> let's move into the Spring Breakers arriving. And this is where we really start all of the little, like, they're not really subplots. They're close. They try to be subplots. But what we're introduced to here is we, we introduce the the wallet, what I refer to as the wallet thief, the guy pickpocket. who the pickpocket, who we follow through the film, who gets several different sequences and it won't and then near the end of the movie, spoiler alert, he gets killed. Yeah. Sadly but, off screen, but sadly off screen. We really we really would rather have seen this guy get killed. Well, at the execution we met both the cop and the priest, the priest character, the Reverend And Gail. And Gail, the sister of the vic, of the previous victim. And we we inter- we were introduced to the priest again and his daughter. We're never given any any indication of just exactly how he became a single father. So so, so somehow the mother is not in the picture. Uh, the daughter is eighteen, and we see her drinking a beer and being seen by her father, her her reverend father, and getting a little talking to from him as he feels as he's very clearly very disappointed in his daughter for for wanting to act like these terrible spring break kids. And the, there's the first quote of, of the movie that I love. Uh, Welcome to Spring Break, the annual migration of the idiot. <laughs> yes, I know. I wrote that down as well. <laughs> I absolutely love that. That's that's uh, the doctor, the Michael Parks character. Yes. Uh, who uh, was there for the execution as well. And he's uh, kind of like the, the the main doctor for doing you know the all the autopsies in, in this uh, in this city or this county. And he's also kind of the... I don't, it, it, there's a point at which I kind of wonder, is he the only goddamn doctor in this town or what? I know, right? For a pop, for a city of this population, there should be more than one doctor, but he's the only one we ever meet. Then we have uh, Skip Banachek and his and his buddy, uh, Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie Rivera. They're, they're down there to do the spring break thing. They're there to essentially kind of do spring break and to hopefully cheer Skip up after him fucking up the Orange Bowl. Now, now, one thing I, I just want to tell everybody is whenever you see Ronnie Rivera in the movie, there's always going to be a whole bunch of condoms dropped on the ground or some yes. kind of references made to rubbers. Yes. And I, until the fourth time I saw this movie, I never realized how many times rubbers are mentioned in this guy's presence. It's constant, man. And sadly, this new guy never got laid as much as he wanted to. Yeah, I, I don't... Well... Maybe he did, but if so, it's off camera, and we certainly didn't see any evidence of it. That's for sure. Yeah, we definitely did not. He he just comes off as a total frat boy idiot. Uh, also, in this opening sequence, we're we're introduced to uh, this this kind of um, prankster character. Who at first you think it's a it's a corpse. 
in the pool and people freak out and it's just this guy with like a fake wound and some fake blood in the pool. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, okay, so we're going to see this asshole doing stupid shit throughout yeah. the rest of the movie. Then we learned that uh, Diablo, the motorcycle gang member who we saw executed at the beginning of the film, his body has been stolen from the local graveyard. And I have to say, for a gang member, he had a pretty nice plot. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed that too. <laughs> Which is really strange as soon as you start to realize that he's just this scummy gang guy who ran this this motorcycle gang in the area. And it's just like, who the hell paid for this nice plot where his body got supposedly dug up? And it's like, of course, because it's a movie. What we have here is Tim taking advantage of the fact that this was a pre-dug grave. And so, okay, well, we'll use this. So it's like... Wouldn't this guy, I mean, would they have not, you know, ziplocked him into something and tossed him into a ditch? I mean, I'm actually surprised they didn't put him in a phosphate mine. <laughs> yeah, really, which comes up later. Exactly. So, the first first night of spring break, uh, we are introduced to, uh, out, out on the interstate, we're introduced to the creepy biker. And this is, uh, you're right. You're right to mention earlier. You well before we started recording, you mentioned strip nude for your killer. Yeah. And the whole idea of the you know the 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 the, the leather biking outfit with the the full full covering helmet, which makes this per, the person completely anonymous, wearing gloves and boots and everything. And so, when we we're introduced to this kind of creepy biker or the devil biker, as I started to refer to him as, he picks up a hitchhiker, this this attractive young woman who's uh, hitchhiking to Manatee Beach. Oh, and I want I want to stop you real quick. Uh... One, one thing uh, I want to note is I think they used the same LeBaron to pick up the hitchhikers before her. Oh, really? Was it? it I, was didn't, I didn't LeBaron. notice. I didn't notice. Is it the same I, color? The same color and everything. I think wow. it's the same exact car. That's crazy. Uh, well, we are. He, he picks her up, drives her to uh, a kind of dead-end area of the, uh, the interstate, and as she's attempting to, as she's gotten creeped out and attempting to get off the bike, uh, he electrocutes her. And this is where we're introduced to I cannot call this this electrified motorcycle uh, the strangest murder weapon in the history of slasher. The slasher. It's genre. an electric chair built into a motorcycle. Correct. I can't call it the craziest one, but my God, it's in the top five. This is weird, man. It's pretty ludicrous. Yes, it's completely ludicrous. It makes zippoid sense. You buy it within the context of the film because they give it just enough. You know, essentially, cinema reality to make you go, all right, all right, I can, I can roll with this. Um, but essentially, if you if you're on the bike and you're like holding this thing, you should know isn't isn't normal to have installed on a motorcycle in the first place. This kind of uh, hand grab, this kind of uh, it's 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 not it's not it's it's almost a duplicate of the handlebars, but it's just one that you can kind kind of pull up from the from the left and the right on each side of like the back the of the shit seat. Handles. Yeah, yeah, oh shit handles. But they're they're mobile, they swing back and forth. But while holding these, the devil biker has a button right near his gas tank, which sounds awful dangerous as well, that he can push and electrocute the person holding on to those particular handles. It's um it's weird. What did you think? I gotta say, I kind of admire the uh, audacity of the special effects of the dummy getting fried. Yeah, it being intercut with the actual actor's face. Um, there's only one special effect in this movie that I that I really wish that they kind of found a different way to do. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. But the joys of the uh, the dummy being flash fried right in front of you is actually kind of a joy. I, I really enjoy that. I got I got a kick out of that. 
No, it, it's really fun, but one thing that goes through my head is, how is the biker not getting electrocuted? Precisely. What is he wearing? I mean, what, what, what kind of underwear is he wearing? <laughs> is he, he's all I mean, the same is he, bike. Is he wearing a rubber biker suit? Maybe. Maybe it's not leather. Maybe it's rubber. Who knows? I mean, that, that, it seems a little dangerous, because would you, would you not get electrocuted, too, if the person behind you that is touching you yeah. gets electrocuted? That's the way I understand electricity to function. But a lot of unanswered questions on the electrification of the motorcycle. I'm not even sure how you go about doing this. What is it they said in the Ed Wood movie, uh, Suspension of Disbelief? Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the always willing suspension of disbelief. And it's like, I'm willing to go along with it because I'm enjoying myself at this point in the movie. But at the same time, come on. What, how did this? Okay. Nevertheless, all questions will be answered except that one. Yeah. <laughs> so... Before we go to the next scene, I actually forgot my other quote from the movie that I forgot to mention earlier from uh, our rubber buddy. Uh, Beaver scouting patrol leaves in five minutes, <laughs> which is great. Well, I'm there's sorry. a lot. There, in any spring... Well, see, that's the thing. Those are those are typical lines that you would expect from a spring break comedy. Yes. Of this period as, as well, of which there were... Man, how many spring break comedies were produced in the 80s? It just, I mean, I can think of five or six off the top of my head, like Fraternity Vacation. And Spring stuff. Break. Yeah, well, yeah, obviously. But it's like, even the ones that don't specifically reference it in the title, once you're watching it, you're like, oh, okay, well, that's Fraternity Vacation. That's just a fucking Spring Break movie. Yeah. There's lots and lots of hard bodies is pretty much a Spring Break, you know, all of these kind of things. The way in which this film is an amalgam of a lot of different types of films that were constantly produced in the 1980s. Lines like that are exactly what I would expect from a spring break comedy. Oh, absolutely. And and of course, you know, the prankster character and the pickpocket character, those are characters that could be in the spring break movie as well. You know, the, the pickpocket character would be the like the like semi-serious thing that would be the thread that yeah. runs through the movie that fi- you know, then you and he finally gets caught at the end or in the third act in some way. So to kind of like tie that up in a bow so that you've got that one serious thing going on that doesn't actually have to do with people actually falling in love. <laughs> so that would be the plot through line for that kind of thing. Oh, man. Oh, but, but let's not skip over the fact. Remember, this is where we're introducing all of these little bitty strange yes. uh, characters and plot, plot, plot threads that kind of, I won't call, like I say, I won't call them subplots because they don't really rise to that level. But you've got the, after we see the hitchhiker fridge, uh, flash fried, we uh, are introduced to the uh, the hotel owner who's a peeping Tom. We've already met the hotel owner earlier when Skip and Ronnie checked into the place. But now we see that he has a hole drilled in the in the laundry room so that he can he can see into one of the, one of these particular rooms, uh, the prostitute's room. And he also yeah. hinted that he gave her a special room when he checked her in earlier because he's like, I gave you a special room. It has a lot of mirrors. He's like, why would you think I need a lot of mirrors in my room? And he's kind of went, oh, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> because you're hot, and it turns out that you're this really... I refer to her as... I refer to that character as the clever prostitute. Which because, is what she is. Yeah, yeah, she's very smart about this. She is clearly a prostitute, but she does not do anything that would lead her to ever being arrested because the way she sets her sights on an individual to uh, have them pay for sex with her... They may not even, in some cases, have had sex because she, it's, it's an, always an older man mm-hmm. who she gives this, you know, not really a sob story, but a kind of very sympathetic story about something that, you know, about, you know, it's always different about yeah. why she is where she is and why she actually kind of just needs a quarter to call her parents or something like that. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And she weaves this story and the, the, the older gentleman, the middle-aged or older gentleman, 
thinks that he can kind of take advantage of her, but it's really her taking advantage of him. And they oh, yeah. always willingly give her money for what might in some cases have just been a massage or a rub down, but <laughs> she's clearly making bank and she came there to make bank. So it's, it's pretty cool. I like the clever prostitute character and I dislike the fact that she gets killed because I, I really actually liked how smart she was. Yeah, I, I have no problems with her. I think she's actually very intelligent for playing the game right and finding her marks. Yeah. Um, so one thing I want to note before we move on is the hotel clerk or owner or whatever he is, Yeah. he always has the same 70s shirt on. <laughs> Does he? I think he only owns one shirt. And suspenders. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe he has a closet just full of just that one shirt. <laughs> that was another problem in the 80s. <laughs> I don't know what to call it, but it was a problem. <laughs> Ah, yes, sir. Now, that should be carrying you through the whole next semester, huh? I don't know how to thank you. Oh, well, you just get your degree and help all those poor people. I will. I will. All right. Bye-bye, darling. Bye. Also during this period, uh, Skip and Ronnie meet the Demons Motorcycle Gang, which Diablo was a part of. Um, I just want to say, because it's, it's only at this point in time that you see the sign of the place they, they're at. Yeah. Apparently, it's a popular bar, and wherever the hell, hell they're at, it's Nick's Bar and Restaurant. Nick's? Nick's. Oh, Nick's. Okay. Really? Yeah. I did not notice that. It, oh. It's only in that scene where it pans down in the front, and yeah. you see the sign. You never see the sign again. Hmm. That's odd, because there are several scenes inside it. Okay. Yeah. Well... Well, Skip and Ronnie meet the Demons Gang, and you pointed out to me on the phone the other day that the logo for the Demons that they have on their jackets is the logo for the Lamberto Bava, Dario yeah. Argento film, Demons. And as soon as you said that, I went through and looked, and went, oh my God, he's right. Yeah, it's also pointed out, I read a few reviews of this movie, and the commentary also points it out, too. And as soon as I looked, I was like, look closely, excuse me. Um, <laughs> look, yeah, I was like... Closely. Uh, and as soon as it was said, like in the commentary, I saw a sleeve, and I'm like, "Hey, that that is that's <laughs> that's, the, that that's is. the that's the demons font for the movie the movie Demons." Holy crap! Well, while Skip and Ronnie have this run in with this this motorcycle gang, the Demons, uh, the only thing that interrupts it is Striker, the cop showing up, John Saxon's character showing up to intervene, and he's got a reason to be there. He's he's he wants to talk to the gang members. Because, of course, they've discovered that Diablo's body has been stolen from the, from the cemetery. But what I love is that this sets up a pattern that the movie then slavishly follows for the rest of the running time. Which is, every time Skip is in bad problems, he meets the Demon's Motorcycle Gang, it's like Stryker pops up like a goddamn jack-in-the-box. Yeah. Oh, I mean, never like, fails. every time, every time. And there comes a point where I kept waiting for them to like drop the other shoe and say, yeah, Stryker's got his eye on this young boy. <laughs> Just following him around <laughs> and protecting him in some weird way. Of course, that's not what's going on. It's just, you know, the, the, it's the, the clunkiness of screenwriting where you have to get these characters in certain places at certain times. And you want to have a threat but you can't have it, you know, you can't have it explode at this point. You can't have a fight break out because then there's only one or two ways this can go and that will completely change the rest of the story. So you have to have an intervention to make sure that this, you know, is still, you know, kind of rising to a head instead of exploding. So it does get funny because anytime, if, if you watch this film, the first time you might not notice it, but the second time you, you watch the movie ever, you will notice, wow, every time he meets the demons, Stryker just pops up out of nowhere. <laughs> 
it's really strange and there's never any decent explanation except for this first time. <laughs> I figured he might be stuck in Manichek because he's mad about losing 50 bucks on the Orange Bowl. <laughs> it's true. That's a line of dialogue in the movie. You're right. Maybe that's that asshole that cost me 50 bucks in the Orange Bowl. That's I know who that bit. motherfucker is. Well, then, then you'd think he'd just hang back like the gang members beat the shit out of him, which you know is going to happen. So, <laughs> Okay, so inside the bar we meet um, the sister the, the sister character again, the sister of the victim, the original victim. Gail. Gail. We meet her again, and they meet him. The Skip and Ronnie meet her. And she hates her job. Uh, she clearly hates her job. Uh, Skip bails pretty quickly. He's just not in the party mood. While uh, Ronnie starts hitting on every, every everything that does not have a penis in the room. So one thing one thing you want to notice is how the the romance starts between Skip and Gail is oh, she, very, no, yeah, it's she not notices big. him getting hit on by the preacher's daughter and he's just like, no, I'm I'm not interested. And it, it's funny because the line of dialogue is, you want to go for a walk with me? No, no, I'm not interested. Come on, I'll treat you real good. And I'm like. <laughs> Who says that? I know who in the hell, except for a prostitute, which this girl is not. Who the hell but a prostitute would say that? And yet we've got a prostitute in this movie who's way smarter than that kind of thing. What the hell is going on here? uh, Gail observes this as she sees him leave. You can see her eyes and it's just like, oh, he's a decent guy. I kind of like him. And let's just be honest. uh, Sarah Buxman in this movie is very, very hot. She's a pretty woman. Yes. I, I, th- I think the most attractive woman in it is the clever prostitute. She's a beautiful woman. A gorgeous body. Um, I would argue that, although we don't get the chance to see it, I think she's got a more expressive face as an actress. Yeah. But Sarah Buxton's pretty darn good in this. Yeah, she's yeah. not bad. And uh, I just saw pictures of her recently. Sarah Buxton? Yeah. There is a lot of plastic surgery going on there. Oh, wow. Really? And I, I hate to say that because... She probably doesn't need it. She has a very striking face to me. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, I see it. I, I, the initial pictures I saw of her, I'm like, this can't be the same person. And then I looked a little bit closer. I'm like, oh, that is. Wow. It's, a, it's that problem you get into. I hate to say it. I always go back to the the mistake of, of Meg Ryan just fucking up her face with plastic surgery. And it's like, why don't you just age gracefully like <laughs> I don't know, Susan Sarandon or all these other women who just like, you know, you're going to look older, but you'll still have the same face and people will remember you. Well, I think uh, this is my opinion because, you know, I don't want to sit here and disparage any lady for their looks. but No, of course not. Um, I think it's just a Hollywood machine. You think you yeah. have to look a certain way and you get obsessed yeah. with it and you have this easily available. And it's and it's certainly something that you can afford. <laughs> it's not something that's looked down on within the within that industry at all it's something that almost everyone does i mean even george clooney has copped to having you know done had a little you know surgery around around his eyes to smooth out the wrinkles around his eyes even even men i mean everybody does this but not everybody cops to it and it's very easy to fall into the trap of just having too much of it sometimes yeah uh you see a lot of that around nashville too <laughs> well Yes, you do. Speaking of speaking of uh, some of the creepy faces that I see out in music venues, sometimes when I know that there are industry people there, Ugh, especially holy crap! Yeah, there are some both male and female some faces where you're going, man, you should not have had that operation. 
I don't know why you thought that was a good idea, but your eyes shouldn't be that far apart. <laughs> they and, just shouldn't. And I'll, I'll be fair here. Just not say that plastic surgery is bad for everybody. I'm also, just saying extreme not. plastic surgery. It's like if it's very obvious that you've had a, like a shit ton of plastic surgery, it just... There's something going it, on. It really freaks me out. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. I had a boss one time that would do the collagen and the lips. And um, she, she started a lisp. Oh, because of the she lips? Got a, when she got them blown up. So not only are these lips blown up and it's obvious to me, but she's lisping and I'm sitting there going, why did you do this to yourself? And I'm like, you know, I don't want to, I can't say anything, but it's just like, oh my God, why did you do this to yourself? Do you not realize? What, what is happening? <laughs> do you yeah. not understand what's happening? Yeah. All right. So we get, we have the meet cute sequence, which is actually pretty well played between Skip and Gail. It's pretty good. And, yeah. and, and I like it because in a, in a, in a movie that was trying to rush this kind of thing, it would have them actually engage in something a little bit more romantic faster. Yeah. But it's like the third time they're they have a scene together in this movie before it becomes kind of clear that both of them are attracted to each other. And I think that's great because that is very different from a lot of the typical quote unquote spring break movies. If you're just to take the horror the horror element out of this movie and just talk about this element where the the couple that meets and by the end of the movie are together as a as a as as a couple. This one, this movie is in no, is in no way rushing it. It's trying to kind of let this build bit by bit, and it's clear to the audience, but just not to the characters yet. You know, one one thing that it makes me think of is like with any given slasher movie, it's like they're both the final girl because yeah. they're both more innocent and virginal than everybody else around them. Not and not that either one of them are pretending to be innocent or virginal. It's just that they're actually of good character. Neither yes. of these people are there to be hedonistic. They're not there engaging in this. She's working in the bar because it's you know it's it's a it's a good job. It pays well, and it's really the only yeah. thing that she's got to, going for her right now. He's there because his buddy drug him along, and he's kind of you know he's at sixes and sevens and doesn't really know what to do with himself right now because he had this major failure in his personal life. So. He's kind of down in the dumps, and his buddy's trying to cheer him up, basically. Right. Yeah. And it, you're you're right. Both of these characters are the quote unquote final girl. They're they're they're, they're they are that character kind of is split into male and female, which is another interesting thing about this movie. Because if you look at all the other people who get killed, except for maybe the hitchhiker, most people are of ill intent, but they are not. So therefore, they're the heroes. It's kind of the classic yeah. slasher thing. Yeah, the thing that became so much a trope that it was being made fun of while at the while the slasher boom was in full stride. I mean, it was already being it was already being parodied um, by by as early as like the early '80s because it was very clear that that was the setup. I mean, and of course, a lot of that boils down to uh, building too much off of the template seen through yeah. Halloween, which is Laurie Strode is. The, the, the virgin yeah. character, the character who is not in some romantic entanglement, and she's the one that survives. And you know, kind of building too much off of that in a, in a lot of ways. But, you know, everybody's looking for the formula that's going to make them a lot of money, and yeah. it makes sense. Well, we once again see the priest's daughter uh, having a, a, a conversation with her father as she's telling him off, as she's explaining that she's 18 and she can do what she wants. Damn it. And this is where she has her Venice Beach shirt, too. Yeah, I know. The one that really confused the shit out of me. Yeah. Uh, we, we see the wallet thief again as he's talking to some uh, some girls on the beach and then leaves. And then w- and one of them realizes that her purse is missing. Uh, 
We get our first wet t-shirt contest to, of course, get a little free TNA into the movie. And right before that, we see uh, Skip on the beach being mopey again. And his buddy says another one of my favorite lines in the movie. (laughs) Stop being such a wank. Good line. (laughs) And another one that fits within this movie and could very easily be in a spring spring break comedy. No, no. uh, Jumping back to the wet shirt t-shirt contest. The funniest part about this is Skip's expressions. You see him go, no, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. Put some glasses on. <laughs> and it's just like, oh my God, this is so corny. <laughs> it, 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 keep your eyes on him because he does a lot of that throughout the movie. Like, yeah, no. No. Yeah, he's like he's kind of resistant because it's just not his thing. And, he's, <laughs> and you're right, he's mopey, so... He, he, he just does that emoting thing. They just keep getting him to do it. It's just like, uh, this is a little much. <laughs> they keep, just, yeah, they keep using it. You're right. It, it, to me, it just makes the movie more hilarious. But I'm going gonna, gonna to agree with you. You're right, yeah. Well, uh, we meet Gail again there in the bar. Uh, Ronnie, Ronnie and Skip there go to drink. And what occurs to me is, is that you're on spring break. Is there only one bar in town? <laughs> do they not? I'm, I'm pretty sure there's more than one bar. But they always this, go to this one. They always go to this one. Uh, Ronnie makes an ass out of himself again, just hitting relentlessly on Gale in a rather embarrassing and overt way. Now, uh, uh, one thing uh, I did want to bring up is this is where you see the attraction again. She's staring yeah. at Skip as he leaves. Because he just, yeah, he, he just he lets he lets Ronnie go off and do his thing, and Skip returns to the hotel. Yeah, and Ronnie actually notices that and makes a comment about the fact that you know basically his friend needs to get laid. And uh, another quotable thing from this movie is, <laughs> "I didn't know they taught pipping in college." Uh, that's a great line from Gail. I like that. That quite is a, a very bit. good line. Is it, it's cutting and it's very effective. Um, we 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 get another scene of the the clever prostitute, you know, reeling in reeling in another mark. Uh, and it, once again, just building that over the course of the film. Was that the the physical therapist guy? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the one that was. I think honestly, I think that was just a mas- a, a massage kind of situation because uh, we see her. No, no, no. It's it's one of these after she walks him out of the uh, the hotel room. We see her go back in, and she's wearing a bathrobe, but she's still got her underwear on. So it's like I think she just massaged yeah, this guy. That's this one. <laughs> I think yeah. that's all that was. Maybe, Happy they, ending. Yeah, I think it's just a, yeah, I think it was just a hand job at most. So uh, that night we see Ronnie uh, out on the out on the prowl, <laughs> hitting aggressively on some really on some women who are just not having it. And I, then, I have had friends like this. Oh, and it's I've, very embarrassing. I have seen them as well. Yes. Yes. I will never cop to having been such a twat, <laughs> but I may have been such a twat in my younger days. I've never been like that. Not not, oh, not, not like Ronnie. Not like, not like Ronnie. No. I'm, don't be like Ronnie. <laughs> this is a PSA. For, he's, he's the goofus. <laughs> he really is. He's not the gallant, I'll tell you that. That's yeah. <laughs> well, he's uh, so so Ronnie being on the prowl, he meets uh, this hot and rather aggressive chick who is making no, no bones about, hey, let's go have sex. Uh, well, if you look closely, you realize, oh, wait, I bet she's... One of the demon chicks. He's part of that motorcycle gang. I would refer to her as Demon Bait. <laughs> demon, demon Bait. That's very good. So, very good. I like that quite a lot. So uh, she lures Ronnie off into this alleyway where the uh, the rest of the motorcycle gang appears, and they uh, beat the holy living shit out of Ronnie. Um, they steal the this rather uh, interesting necklace that he's been wearing the entire time. And... Uh, uh, the girl, t- the the girl takes it. The demon bait girl takes it, 
Uh, and so after that sequence, we then... Uh, don't forget, they dump his rum. He's drinking a bottle of rum. Yeah, yeah. And they dump, they dump that it rum on him. him. It's very important for the next scene. Uh, well, then we... Ha- oh, that's true. You're right. Because then the demon biker shows back up. And uh, to, to make a long story short, he kills Ronnie through electrocution, of course. While Rock Like an Animal plays. Rock Like an Animal? Oh, no, no. Animal. Rock Like an Animal plays when oh, he gets beat up by the demons. I'm sorry. Oh, when he's getting beat the sh- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think now, it's just- and then we cut to the Simonetti score. Is this that awkward spot that you were talking about? <laughs> yeah, where it kind of cuts from one song to the next the one other, fades out. Yeah. The other one comes in when you see the singer. You are correct. You are correct. Well, the demon biker kills Ronnie. And uh, the, 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 he electrocutes him and sets him on fire. And sets him on fire. It's, it's pretty hideous, actually. And once again, it's another one of those uh, one of those things. It's the kind of practical effect that I, I enjoy in these older in these films from the eighties, the seventies, eighties, and nineties, where uh, it's pre CGI. So what you're dealing with are, are, are what you could call dummy deaths. But at the same time, when done effectively and edited properly, they are they're really effective. They're not always really effective in this because it's very obvious when you're looking at the dummy that's you know that's having you know flames shoot through its mouth or eyes or whatever in the hell. But yeah. uh, this is still I still love this kind of thing because this is really effective stuff and it's just it's it's of its time. It's like why I like film noir. It's like a, you know those are the way that's the way these films are made and those tropes are just part of it. And if you don't enjoy yeah. it, then don't even sit down and try to try to watch it. Or just like the same thing with Giallo, Giallo or anything else. Yeah, like that. exactly. Yeah. You're, you're going to get that overly bright. You know, blood being used, and if you're not aware of what that, you know, you're not aware of that aspect of these films, and you know, it's going to take you out of it. So yeah. you just need to step away from it. But the police and the mayor, after after Ronnie's body is found, uh, the doc is examines it, does does what aut- does the does an autopsy, and the police and the mayor are really shutting this down hard, <laughs> and they want this death because this this is the second death that they've now apparently covered up because there was a body that was found outside the city and that was the hitchhiker's body. But they can kind of brush that aside because that wasn't in the city. They yeah. they even have a scene where the mayor is actually talking to uh, news reporters and actually says, well, I don't know anything about that. That was outside the city, so that has nothing to do with us. But this one, they can't, they, they've got to do something about. But they, they it's not public knowledge. No one's gotten their, their no one you know the newspapers aren't aware of this yet. So the mayor and Stryker order well the, the mayor and the doc and the and Stryker actually conspire to hide this body and they literally say we'll just hide this body out in and bury it out in the uh, local uh, phosphate mine. Yeah, the phosphate mine. And I love the fact that this is the scene where we finally learn why the very the very um, wary doctor the doctor who's obviously nervous about this entire thing and is kind of on the verge of not being a part of this entire conspiracy the entire time we, this is the line this is the scene where you get the mayor saying to him <laughs> you, you'll go along with this like a like you have everything else before because otherwise other people will find out about the pills for that you hand out to your pretty little boys it's Ooh, just like, I didn't. I missed that line. Yeah, that's that's the that's the line where you find out just exactly how he's being extorted <laughs> it's like no, 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 you're gay, it's under wraps, and you like the fact, that's the reason, that, and then that, that just builds an entire world for that doctor immediately. It's like, well, there's the reason he's in this town for the spring break for the pretty boys that come here. And it's like, oh, shit. And as a doctor who's already, we've seen, got a drinking problem, holy shit, that just builds the whole character. You're just like, oh, shit. So this is how they get this doc to do whatever they want him to because otherwise he's handing out pills, he shouldn't, he's handing out prescription drugs, to young boys to have sex with them, and it's like, holy, 
okay, so nicely done, well done. You know, and it's a weird thing is as many times I've now seen this film, uh, I haven't always missed that. It's it's right there. It's it's that one line of dialogue just that just lays it all out. Flies right over me somehow. Well, from there we see Skip, who's now looking for his missing buddy Ronnie. He goes to the bar, asks Gail. Gail knows nothing, of course, but she show, she shows some actual concern, probably not for Ronnie in general, but because Skip seems to be a nice guy. Then we get a more stock footage of a wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> exactly. So we get our second and, wet uh, t-shirt contest. I know for a fact that whatever song is playing is definitely Ronda Nelly. Okay, cool, cool. What, what's the name of it? You know, uh, I don't remember now. I didn't write it down. There are three of them in this in this freaking movie. Three of them. It has to be either. Bad love, so right, mean and nasty, or fear no evil. I have a feeling it's mean and nasty. <laughs> Probably mean and nasty. I have, I have a feeling it was. Well, um, while he's doing all this walking around, he actually he's hunting for Ronnie. Skip spots the the medal, the necklace that uh, that Ronnie had, and it's being worn now by the the biker chick, or the, the demon demon bait, as I call her. Um, and he asks her about it. She essentially tells him to fuck off, but he follows her. To where the gang is, which is on the outskirts of town in this kind of you know rundown warehouse area. So one thing I want to bring to your attention real quick is while she's bringing a pizza and some beer, it's only a six pack of Michelob Light for a whole gang of people and one pizza and one pizza. It's like that ain't gonna fly. I mean, are you just splitting it between you and your boyfriend, or are you bringing stuff for everybody? Because you need stingy. at least yeah, that's that's not gonna. First of all, you're gonna need a case, and you're gonna need three to four pies. Let's be honest. And. My God, is Michelob Light, which I don't think, even think exists in this day and age. <laughs> Thank God. If it, if it does, I don't want to know. Uh, probably somewhere, but not here. Well, uh, he's, he's hi- trying to hide behind some, uh, some bushes and, and watching the gang from a distance. But, of course, he's not real good at this. And so he gets grabbed by the gang. And you figure, oh, well, he's about to get the holy living shit beat out of him, just like his buddy before him. When, of course, out of nowhere pops up Stryker again. <laughs> As if, uh, yeah, I know. As if he was, like I say, following this guy around, but he's not following this guy around. It's just kind of weird. But at this point, he's, uh, you know, still looking for the missing body of Diablo, and he's, he's got still, a warrant. yeah, and he's got a warrant to search this area where the gang hangs out. And uh, he just showed up just in time to keep Skip from getting the crap kicked out of him. So good for him, or at least you know, good for Skip. Survived once again. Survived once again by by a carefully scripted Deus Ex Machina. So. Hey, come on, nobody's gonna fuck with John Saxon. Well, certainly not in this movie because it's clear <laughs> it's clear he's a mean, nasty son of a bitch. Uh, well, the demon biker shows up again, and this time he clear he kills the sleazy hotel owner. Now, this one, this is where we move the film from. The killer doing what he's doing out in the streets, out on the interstate or in, in an alleyway to inside. And this is where we get into an area where the, the, the MO, the modus operandi for this guy completely changes because it's he, he has decided to go into the hotel and kill this, this sleazy hotel owner, which yes. is all well and good. I mean, we're aware that he's a sleazy scumbag, but... So you have to think he's getting more confident because he's gone from outside the city, yeah, back alley, inside a hotel. Right. And in this instance, actually ends up killing two people because he kills the uh, sleazy hotel owner. And then when the clever prostitute spots what's going on, she spots the, she finally spots it because of the... Because she sees the eyeball. She sees the, the eyeball poking through the hole in, the, in, her, in her wall and goes in there and discovers the dead body 
gets in the elevator to to go down to like she's gonna have to call the police and then she gets killed by the demon biker as well who has cleverly obviously prepped himself for this by hiding above the elevator to kill her and this is the special effect that i'm going to complain about um i enjoy dummy deaths but this is not a dummy death this is the killer continuing to to use electricity to kill by using a a uh, a raw electrical wire that he shoves into the clever prostitute's mouth to electrocute her but then we get animated electrical effects oh yeah in front of her face and it's um it's goofy it's wrong <laughs> yeah it's just not something that should have been in the film uh, i know that they felt, probably felt they needed to somehow get across that she's being electrocuted but just having that happen and then maybe having her fall to the floor and her body smoking would have been probably more effective. As you know, in my other podcast, Five Minutes After Midnight, uh, where I do all the details of trick-or-treat for five minutes at a time, I noticed a little detail that was uh, very odd to me and made me very curious. Uh, the sleep shirt the prostitute has on. Right. It is an Aries shirt, and it's uh, the Aries goat, right. I believe, kicking Garfield. It is? Yeah. Okay, I did not notice that. Yeah, it's, it, it's like, if you really look and you'll notice that, it's, it's something that's, that always distracted me during that scene. It's just like, is that, <laughs> is that a bootleg like flea market shirt? What is that? Like, I really, I kept wanting to, every time, even the first time I watched the movie, I wanted to see what that was because it's just something that attracted my attention. Well, I guess at the time, I mean, it might not have been a bootleg. But I, I, get, I mean, late 80s would have been the height of Garfield mania. So there was a lot of, I mean, a lot of different products that were being produced with Garfield on them. So I can imagine them actually doing a set of 12 (laughs) Zodiac symbol Garfield t-shirts. I'm going to have to look this up because I'm very intrigued by this now. uh, Honestly, I'll bet you that probably existed. Some enterprising t-shirt manufacturer out there probably made a mint on producing those shirts, I'll bet you money. But I didn't even notice that. I had no, I had no idea. It, it just, I, I saw, I saw Garfield out of the corner of my eye, and I'm like, "What is that?" <laughs> and I see Aries, I see the Ram, and it looks like he's been kicked by the Ram because he's kind of <laughs> like in this position where he's back, and I'm trying to do this right now, where he's back, like, ah, and it's like he's been kicked. So yeah. I was like, "What is this?" Because you know, especially late '80s, early '90s, is how of like weird bootleg shirts, like yeah. One of my favorites is I ain't afraid of the I ain't afraid of no butts. <laughs> I ain't afraid of no butts. I actually have a repro of that somebody <laughs> made with Slimer, with his arm around two butts. Oh my god! You know the black Bart Simpson. Yeah, oh yeah, lots. Yeah, a lot of Simpson yeah. stuff. That was all the that was the, that was the nineties where black market Simpsons t shirts and toys and weird weird little oh, yeah. geegaws and Great things, stuff. man. All kinds of stuff. Hello, Gail. Is my daughter in there? She left earlier. Sorry. Excuse me. Something wrong? That poor man. He's the father of that girl who came on to you the other night. Did you see my friend? I looked for him, but he didn't come in. I found this medal. Some biker chick was wearing it. One of the demons? They're bad news. They didn't tell me anything. I think they beat him up. 
for you to check the beach clinic. And that's where they take all the injured breakers. Where is it? I'll show you. I'm in. I'm scared. Gail Jackson. Before we get too far, too much further into this movie, I did want to say whether or not Umberto Lindsay directed this is kind of beside the point to the amount of enjoyment I get out of the movie. But I did want to say, um, for a long period of time, I kind of thought of Lindsay as a, a lesser Italian filmmaker, and it's because I had not seen some of his earlier stuff. Um, because when I came to Lindsay, it was primarily because of things like Nightmare City, which I absolutely love, and hell, I've done a podcast on it. I'm going to make you mad. I don't like that film. You don't like Nightmare City? I don't. I, it annoys the hell out of me. What about it annoys you? Uh, you know what? I love a lot of cheap and sleazy Italian films. I, Which I, that certainly fits the bill it of. It does. But something about that film just annoys the shit out of me. I've just, even as a kid, I hated it. I still don't like it to this day. It, it, it It's the shittiest of the, the zombie movies in that period of time to well, me. Th- the reason I had such a bad impression of Lindsay was not Nightmare City. I, I, I kind of thought of it as exactly the kind of thing that it was. Um, but I had not backed up and seen some of the stuff that he was involved with that it, it really now, when I look back on it, are incredibly impressive. I had not seen the batshit crazy film Eyeball. I haven't seen that either. Eyeball, Eyeball, Eyeball is amazing. I, that's, that's actually one I really, really want to see. I hadn't seen Man from Deep River. I hadn't seen uh, uh, Seven Bloodstained Orchids. I certainly hadn't seen any of the uh, Euro spy stuff that he did in the 60s, which is, almost all of the ones that he made were actually pretty damn good. I kind of get a kick out of a lot of the stuff he did. Even some of the stuff when you start getting into his later years, the 80s and 90s, uh, Iron Master, which was his kind of entry in the uh, the Italian uh, barbarian stuff. I think Iron Master is actually pretty damn great. Um, Cannibal Ferox is where I first knew of him, but Cannibal Ferox is, is one of those movies where it's like, is this guy actually a, a competent filmmaker or is this just you know a bunch of gore thrown onto the screen? I like to call that movie the feel-bad movie of the year. And it really year. works as such. This is true. Uh, but then I, I'll be honest... As I got to see more and more of his movies across, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, I found myself enjoying them. Even when I thought they were not particularly well made, I thought they were fun. Uh, And then there were the ones where you look at them and you go, well, this is actually really well made. I think Eyeball is a well-made movie. I think Seven Blood Saint Orchids is a good movie. And even the stuff that he made in the 80s, like the Filmarage stuff, like uh, Ghost House and stuff like that, I think they're competently made. I don't think they're particularly good. <laughs> so I enjoy them, but I'm never going to tell anybody it's a good movie. Yeah, Lindsay's a name that's always stuck out since I was younger in video store days. Like, of course, what a, he only did, the only other Campbell movie he did was Man from Deep River. Man from Deep River, which apparently was one of the first of that type, and is actually a really solid movie. It's a good movie. Uh, I have that. I have. I just bought that recently under the name Sacrifice, I believe. Um, I can't remember. It's possible. I, I and I could be. Well, he also did Eaten Alive, which I think Eaten Alive. Eaten Alive is is uh, the first one I ever saw because it was under the Emerald Jungle, right? On a videotape, I saw I saw that several times. But the thing about Lindsay is that he's one of those guys. He's one of those guys who was kind of a, a director for hire, and he seemed to be able to move from genre to genre to genre pretty effectively. But I think that his most interesting work is almost always in the the giallo or horror genre. And so, whether he was really the director on this or not, 
he was a good call to bring in, even if he didn't direct it in the end. He was a good person to call in to kind of shepherd a story like this through because he's good at this yellow thing. And yeah, there are some similarities to Seven Bloodstained Orchids here. So okay, I have a, I have a little something I took notes on um, from the commentary that uh, said Lindsay would make several movies in one genre, then move on to another. Yeah. So we're looking sixty sixty five adventure peplum and peplum offshoots. Yeah, he did some good peplum too. Yeah. Yeah, late 60s with spy movies, war films, and westerns, and then 69 to 75 with straight giallo. I'll be honest, I'm not positive that I've actually seen any of his westerns. But, of course, I would I love I to. Haven't. I would love to, but I haven't seen them. So, Did he not do any Policia Tecca movies? Uh, oh, no, wait a minute. No, he did Syndicate Sadists. Oh, that's a very good one, yes. And that's an extremely good one. So, yes, he did. Uh, Syndicate Sadists is excellent, and he did another one I know with, uh, oh, darn it, Thomas Melian, he did uh, The Tough Ones, uh, Manhunt, Gang War in Milan. Well, Knife of Ice is kind of a giallo. Almost Human. Did I, he do, I, don't know, I don't know. Did he do I Almost Human? I believe that was Lindsay. Well, he did The Cynic, The Rat, and The Fist. Oh, he did. He directed Almost Human. He just didn't write it. Violent Naples. So, yeah, he made... That's just it. He's one of those guys who directed movies in a lot... Whatever was the popular genre of the time, he did. Yeah. And, it, and it was, actually, when I started to see... Because, like I said, I came to him through things like Cannibal Ferox. So I kind of thought of him as just this kind of hack. Because Cannibal Ferox doesn't really put you in the position of, you know, examining the, the, the director's skill. But then when you back up, all you have to do is start seeing the stuff he made before that movie. And you realize, no, 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 this guy was really accomplished. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, one thing uh, Deegan uh, compared him to was uh, uh, D'Amato, Joe D'Amato. She said they were both workhorses trying to cash in on trends. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you're messing with bad girls like me, the naughty but nice. Take my body, take it good. Take the shape I'm in, treat me like a real man should. See my big baby blues, the best place to start. But baby, please don't take my heart. Skip and Gail at this point in the movie visit the clinic where they're still trying to find Ronnie. And uh, they, they see the doc there. They talk to him. And uh, Michael Parks is really <laughs> Michael Parks is really good in this role in that he's someone who's who's obviously, he, he can't hide the fact that he, he knows what they're talking about. He, he recognizes the description they give him of Ronnie and knows that this is the body that they hit outside, this, hit outside town in the phosphate mine. But 
he he feels bad about it. It's an it, 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 there's an interesting shading to this character, and then um, but I do have to say that uh, going inside this clinic, this is this is the this is one of the instances where the film's budget shows because they did not hide the fact that this is a set built inside a large warehouse because you can see at the top of the frame. Oh, yeah. And no matter which version of the movie you watch, if you watch a full frame version or if you watch a, a, a matted version, you can still see the, the upper levels. There's not, a, there's not a roof. There's just, you know, drop drops. There's drop ceiling lighting. And then the actual warehouse is like still up there. So they, 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 didn't, they didn't frame it quite well enough to hide the, uh, the set being a set. So I believe... If uh, I am correct, after this point is where we introduce to the last uh, character that has a little bit of a storyline in here. Oh, yeah. The crazy Gators fan. <laughs> Who jumps into the film literally out of nowhere. And <laughs> <laughs> has three scenes. He jumps into the back of, uh, of uh, Gail and uh, Skip's car. The LeBaron, yeah. Yeah, the LeBaron. And just, because by, by the way, if we had mentioned that it's a convertible. And just screams Gators, and you know, just you know, he's obviously a man who's lost his mind. is a Gators fan, and probably drunk, and then jumps out of the car and runs away. I could uh, make some kind of football joke here, but I don't know anything about football, so <laughs> I would make all kinds of jokes about Gators fans, but I don't want to be killed. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would like to point out another another thing at this point. At, at one point, where uh, Skip and Gail are driving around. Uh, we do very clearly during a line during a, scene, a sequence of dialogue. We do see the the shadow of the camera crew very clearly, just <laughs> just go right over Gail's face. It's just just like, well, I guess we aren't doing that scene again, are we? Just for the fuck of it. It's like there they are. See see the camera crew crew waved to them. Yeah, it's very obvious that they're two totally different scenes shot at different times. Yeah. Well, so uh, Skip finally having uh, copped to the the fact that the doc was acting a little suspicious. Uh, he uh, threatens the doctor with a screwdriver. Uh, and, uh, he gets in his car and threatens him by holding the, the thing to his throat. He finally gets some answers out of the doc, and uh, he tells him that he buried the, that they, they had to bury the, his friend Ronnie out at the phosphate mine. And so Skip runs out to the phosphate mine like a total moron, digs up the body, and of course Striker pops up because Striker seems to be following this guy around all the fucking time anyway. Yes. And actually, this is the only time in the movie when Striker popping up is given a, a, an actual reason to happen, which is, as a line of dialogue later says, uh, Ron, where Skip basically says, I'm, I'm guessing the doc probably called Striker and told him, you know, yeah. that, I know that I know now. So Striker for, uh, forces him to bury his friend's body again and then tells him that he's got to leave town. I love the line he has. He says, point this, point this car north and don't stop driving until you see snow. <laughs> I was like, that's a good line. Yes. I kind of like that. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's one way to tell him to get the hell out of town. Yep. Well, the mayor wants uh, a suspect for the hotel bodies because they couldn't hide the clever prostitute and the hotel owner's bodies from the public. That one's that was pretty that's out pretty there. Obvious, in front of yeah. yeah. So he, he wants some kind of suspect, and he tells Stryker, you know, this has got to happen pretty quick. And Stryker has a fall guy already, and that's just the most mal- most mouthy member of the ba- of the of the biker gang left. Um, but before then, we see the devil biker following Gail home, or at least we think he is. Uh, that turns out to be a red herring. Skip is waiting for you know they're, they're like using Gail as bait to try to get the demon biker to show up. So that well, they, they do can... that later. This is this is this is before that. Oh, that's right. You're right. Oh, well, the, well, the, this is the, when the demon biker actually does follow her home. But Skip is waiting for her at home, yeah. and uh, the demon biker doesn't actually do anything. What what happens is the the uh, 
devil biker grabs this just random girl and for some reason takes her to some kind of warehouse where there's a furnace and burns her in the furnace or in front of the furnace. Oh yeah, that's right after that's right during uh that's right after the bonfire scene. Yep. Bonfire <clears throat> bonfire on the beach scene, yeah. And I I just I just want to jump back and 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 break out one detail from that bonfire scene. Sure. You know, bonfire people playing guitars. Right. One guy's playing acoustic guitar. One guy's playing either a Kramer or a Jackson electric guitar with the whammy bar still in it. <laughs> You're not going to be able to fucking hear it. This is an electric guitar. Yeah. There's no power. Sorry, it's just like a little detail that I just loved. I was like, this is so goofy. I love it. <laughs> well, I love the fact that this bo- this woman that he kills with, in front of the furnace, uh, this body, we're told in a line of dialogue later, gets dumped in front of City Hall. So it's clear that the murderer, whoever this murderer may be, has decided, well, they only know about a number of bodies, so I need to make them all public. And so he drops this one in front of City Hall. Okay, and one quick question I have about this, uh, this death scene real quick is, how can you make a furnace shoot fire? I don't know. It doesn't. Okay, first of all, no, it doesn't make sense. But then again, the electrified motorcycle doesn't make sense either. So, and the animated electron, electrical sparks around the clever prostitute's head don't make Anyway. A furnace is not a flamethrower, people. Um, maybe there are furnaces that are that that bad that we don't, we're not aware of. Because all he has to do is open that door and flame just shoots out and kills her. So uh, I think we jump into something that I just want to address. Sure. It's not a wet t-shirt contest. It is stock footage of yeah. a, some kind of man contest. I uh, I put down here that it is a moose knuckle contest. <laughs> All you do is uh, see uh, guys getting oiled up. I'm really surprised they're not checking out packages there, but you know. I was surprised that there was that, that one really really ripped black guy who kind of pulls his pants down so they can see most of his behind. And I was like, well, I mean, you're getting close there. I mean, clearly it would be public nudity if he whipped his dong out, but still effective. Well, at this point, Skip and Gail grab, uh, the, grab the biker chick. <laughs> she, I love this because the, the bikers have gone off. The biker gang has decided to go off and God damn it. After, after Stryker has arrested, uh, just the this the, the mouthy like I say the mouthiest member of the biker gang to take the fall for the for the hotel murders. Uh, Skip and Gail grab the biker chick, and she just like blurts all the information. This one this this woman would not be someone that you would want like she you don't want you don't want her in a room with a lawyer because this woman's not gonna keep her mouth shut. She's not the brightest person in the world. No no no. Well, they uh, start to at this point suspect Stryker, so they go. They find out where Stryker lives, which is a trailer home, and they go and search his stuff, and they find uh, some some bonded sex stuff and pictures of female murder victims, which will tell you just how sick and creepy this Stryker character is. And don't forget they maced his dog. Yeah, they had to mace his dog to get into the place. Which I mean, I hope they didn't really hurt that dog. Oh, and, this, uh, this movie isn't worth it. Let's be honest. One important plot point I don't want to skip over that happened right before that is uh, the doctor kills himself with Stryker and the mayor on the phone. Oh, that's right true. Right before yes. this, yeah. You're right. I, and, I, and the, the, the goofiest uh, uh, suicide scene I've ever seen in my life because he's holding a gun. He goes, you got to hear this. And so he's holding a phone and then trying to hold <laughs> the gun with his thumb and forefinger like the opposite way of how you'd hold a gun. So he's trying to pull the 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 trigger with the yes, thumb with his thumb yeah oh not very convincing goodness. no not very convincing but Stryker returns home while they're searching the place 
notices some things have been moved around him, and, and you think he's about to catch them, but they do escape. Um, but he's aware that somebody was definitely there. He, he, he has a clue because he sees uh, the ripped up photo of Gail's sister. Well, that and the, the shotgun that's laid on the table. It's like even if they hadn't fucked that part of it up, just leaving the gun laying out, the shotgun laying on the table is the first thing he noticed. People, if you're breaking in somebody's house, don't move stuff and leave it where you left it. Put it back where it belongs and they won't know you're there. It's, it's, it's criminal 101, man. Come on. How, I'm, I'm shocked we have to explain this. Anyway... <laughs> We have more of the uh, Reverend and the Daughter drama. And that's where Rough Cut is blasting in her room. Uh, oh, is that it? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the mayor asks if the doc could really have been the killer. The gang decides that they're just going to they're going to free the, their their arrested buddy. That's just the way it's going to be. We're going to go do it. Uh, because the third that would be the third mouth. Well, I guess in this film, the second mouthiest member of the, of the gang gets them all fired up, so they go off to the, to to release the guy who's been arrested by Stryker for the thing that he didn't do. But they leave. I love the fact they leave the biker chicken behind. Women don't need them. <laughs> don't need them. We got to go kill some cops. <laughs> well, the dead the devil biker shows up and then kills the biker chick with of course electricity again. Yeah, because of course that's his modus operandi. That's how he's going to do this always. And then we get to and. I'm going to tell you, folks, we're not going to spoil the ending of this film. We're not going to tell you who the murderer is because we think that you might enjoy actually finding out on your own. Or maybe you won't. I don't really know. But we're going to leave it open-ended for you enough anyway. But I can't get away from we're in the final stretch here of the film. But I did want to point out that on this last night when everything finally comes to a head, uh, there is this, uh, this concert going on, this nighttime concert by a band billing themselves as Zeta. And at first I thought of them as the sexy synth band because the lead singer is a woman. But honestly, as soon as they started playing a saxophone, I realized that they were really just a sexy synth band and they're pretty bad. Yeah, it's- this is uh, also a Kirsten song. Um, uh, there is a band called Zeta, which either is an experimental band or some kind of weird electronic band. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I suspect that this was something that was never that never made it out of Lauderdale. Let's put it that way. I think they're just a bunch of actors hired to do something. But everybody is dressed very 80s. <laughs> very 80s. <laughs> Embarrassingly 80s. We, we got dusters. Parachutey type pants with yep. boots over them. Unnatural colors. Yes. Is this something very very off pink that seems shimmery? It's just it's clothing you shouldn't wear, I'm telling you now. You're waiting for that for that guy from the Lost Boys to pop up at any second. <laughs> well, we see Stryker uh threaten Gale and say that I know that you 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 had you had to be in my house. Uh Skip and Gale then hatch a plan to catch the killer that involves using Gale as bait. The uh, demons attacked the the precinct house while this concert's going on, going on, and they do this. They do whether they're smart enough to figure this out or not. They do it at the right time because there's only one cop in the cop house because they're all out. All the real all the rest the rest of the cops are out doing security for this concert, and because of course it's spring break, and so they they uh, the, the the gang attacks the place, kills the only cop there, uh, break their uh, buddy out, and so clearly. All kinds of shit is about to go down. Um, the, con- the concert is actually stopped by the murder of the Joker, the prankster character, in the electrical room. And uh, we're just going to stop right there because as the movie moves forward in these last few minutes, we do find out who the killer is. It does, we promise you, actually make sense. Uh, it's not It's not one of those movies like, uh, well, just, just to mention one of my favorite examples of this. The movie that I, that I love that Lindsay made called Eyeball... When you get when you find out who the murderer is in, in Eyeball, 
there comes a point when you're like, wait, so you're telling me that this character has been missing an eye the entire movie and somehow we did not know that it was a glass eye? I'm sorry, but I got to call bullshit. Well, this movie doesn't follow that trend. This movie actually makes sense when you find out who the murderer is. And of course, of course, since the method of murder that this killer has used is electricity, you can guess exactly how the murderer yes. is going to end his life. He, he, he dies in a very sorry kind of way. It's, that just it's, wraps up the film very yeah, quickly. No, very quickly. As quickly one, as one thing I do want to uh, bring to note is that uh, John Saxon's character calls uh, Manichek a sorry-ass jockstrap. Yes, he keeps referring to him as a jockstrap in several scenes. And I think that's great, considering that's a great insult for like a college athlete that you're looking down on. I think that's a great insult. So after the scene that the scenes that we're not going to talk about, yeah. that revealed a murderer, spring break is over. But, yep, dawn dawn breaks over the over the entire city, and the spring break is over. The killer has been thwarted, and all is well now. Except there's still trash on the beach, apparently. Uh, yes, and I I have to say that is once again like a typical teen comedy spring break movie where you know you're near the end and everything's wrapping up, and it's like those well. Bye. Guess we're going home now. Da 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 da. Sequences at the end of the movie, and this is a typical sequence from that kind of movie as yeah. well. It's pretty much uh, they're looking at the beach abandoned. Gail says she's not going to miss it, so obviously she's leaving with Skip. Uh, they get in the car and they kiss while he's driving, which is pretty fucking dangerous. <laughs> I, every time I see that that scene, I'm like, he sh- his eyes need to be on the road. <laughs> his eyes really need to be on the road because that car's moving. <laughs> Couldn't they have kissed before they? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just come on, or wait until a, a red light, maybe. I don't know. Just, <laughs> at the very least. And then we cut to a beach scene where we stop at old people walking down the beach for no credits. <laughs> and uh, don't break my heart starts playing again, and you're going, "Oh my god, my ears are bleeding." <laughs> don't break my heart. <laughs> okay. So you. You explained earlier that you caught this film on VHS long ago, right? No, no, no. It was a DVD. Oh, it was a DVD? I yeah. thought it was VHS. No. Oh, okay, that's right. So, um, and it was under the title Welcome to Spring Break. Yes. When you rented it, did you know it was a horror film or were you, I mean, were you fooled with the title? Uh, I know exactly what it was. Yeah. Okay, okay. I even knew that Lindsay directed it because I was going through the database of Netflix. And well, directed it, quote unquote. We yeah. <laughs> so many, so many tales about that. Um, Basically, the thing that appealed to me was, is Lindsay, it's some kind of weird spring break slasher movie. Yeah. And I was like, when we initially did it on the podcast, obviously we didn't go into detail like we did here. All of us watched it together, and uh, Spring Break Forever didn't really have a format, so we just like turned a recorder on and just said whatever. We uh, we did mention uh, Don't Take My Heart Alive. <laughs> well, just out of curiosity, what would be your favorite of the songs in the movie, and what would be your least favorite? Oh, well, that's pretty easy. I would say I thought Rock Like an Animal sounded pretty good from what I could hear of it. Okay. Rough Cut was pretty good. I already liked them, so that's kind of a given. Uh, really, to me, the worst stuff is the Kirsten stuff, especially <laughs> the very awkward acapella beginning of Don't Take My Heart in the beginning of the credits. You're just like, what in the fuck is going on right now? <laughs> I mean, it is just so bizarre. You're looking at a recently deceased corpse still on the electric chair. <laughs> and you have an acapella, a, a girl singing acapella about, you can fuck me, but don't break my heart. 
And you're just like, what in the hell is going on? Spring break. Spring break. Daytona Beach, baby. Let's do this thing. Oh, God. Okay. Um, it, it was it was only about 15 or 16 years ago that I finally like came around to enjoying the slasher genre instead of really being angry about it, to be honest. And in those past in the past you know decade and a half, I've really kind of tried to absorb as much of the genre as possible. But I have, you know, when you start exploring the slasher genre, you start, you know, you start with, you know, Black Christmas and, and Halloween as the, as the kind of antecedents. And, 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 yeah. and, then, and then honestly, really probably Bay of Blood Baba's amazing oh, yeah. twitch of the death nerve. And you, you see those as the, the the grandfathers of this kind of thing, and then it being they kind really, of set it up for everybody else. Exactly, and then you 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 know that those first couple of years of the '80s is when the boom happened, where you get a lot of them made, and there's a lot of good, and there's a lot of bad. It's like any other genre, and then by '85, it's a it's it's a wounded animal, and by the late '90s, it's I mean by the by the by '90 it's dead. They're still being produced, but it's as a genre, as a viable way to make a shit ton of cash with no money or very little money. It's over. Yeah, the genre is over, oversaturated even by the time that I got into it. Oh, yeah. Well, it's just because so freaking many were produced. Oversaturated. It's the right word. You're, you're yeah. correct. So those late 80s slasher films, as I've talked about before, they have a bad reputation, and it's easy to see why. But in that period of time, there were fewer of them being made. But occasionally you do find one that honestly stands up and is actually something that you can enjoy rewatching. It, it, it has that same feeling of, uh, I want to say like a mid-range from the early 80s where it's one of those that is solid. It's not My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. But it's solid, it's well done, and it's got enough that it keeps you in, invested in it all the way through. Yeah. And a lot of that comes from it. it kind of adhering a little bit more to the giallo end of things than to the slasher end of things most of the time. Yeah, there's definitely traces of giallo, even even if you look aside from the, the motorcycle killer, which, you know... Is you very slasher. It. Well, you, I mean, you see the, there's a million giallos that have that in there. Right. I honestly want to own all those films just because I think it's like a cool image. Oh, I love it. I mean, what was the... You know, you talk about Strip Nude for Your Killer where... Such an insane movie. It's oh, it's completely nuts film. It's yeah. almost... It's one it's of the... Great. It's one of the sleaziest giallos ever produced. Highly entertaining, but also... My God, what a misogynistic fucking movie. Oh, fuck <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm, I always love it when I meet female fans of the Giallo who who embrace Strip Nude for Your Killer because it is such an, uh, an overtly misogynistic film. It's like the most obvious example of, wow, how do you make a movie that just seems to fucking hate women? <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's Strip right Nude for Your Killer. I mean, where the, where the hero of the film is essentially, I mean, let's just call him a rapist. I mean, that's what the guy is. And then you come to things like this where... It's trying to juggle a lot of different balls in the air at the same time. Like we said, it's got so many elements of the the comedy the comedy spring break thing. It's got the slasher element. It's got the giallo element. And I would say, except for the kind of graphic nature of the murders, it is it does lean more toward the giallo than the slasher in a lot of ways. Yeah, but it absolutely. very but it very easily fits within the slasher genre simply because the slasher genre was born out of the giallo in a lot of ways. But it's such a different flavor from the most famous and most iconic of the slasher movies. I mean, this isn't Friday the 13th Part 2, which is an incredibly effective, efficient, little murder set piece thriller. This isn't as well put together, as well constructed, and as well built 
as something like that or something like my you know my bloody valentine or something of that nature there's no halloween definitely well certainly no halloween i I don't even mention halloween when we start talking about these movies because that's the one that i mean it's it's, a creature into itself yeah it's a creature into itself it's almost flawless in what it in what in what it sets out to do and how well it accomplishes it but well that black christmas as well i still think um you know we have this new remake of black christmas coming up where it looks like they've this new remake is going to reimagine it to a large degree, and I think that's the best way to go about it because the best thing about the original Black Christmas is how it subverts so many things that you're expecting, even when the ending comes and you realize, oh shit, we they didn't really catch the freaking murderer. They don't really know who the killer is. That's fantastic, and that is the kind of thing that I like to see. That's the kind of thing that sometimes popped up in the giallo genre as well, and it's another one of those threads that you can see kind of pulling the giallo and the slasher together as it moves forward through the 80s. Now, for me, I'm a guy that grew up on slasher films, and that's actually what brought me to enjoy other films, discover Italian films, which is the thing that I love the most. Like, I love all kinds of fucking Italian films, but it all stirred back from, started back from when I got into slasher films, when my buddies forced me to watch Nightmare on Elm Street 2, yeah. and then Friday the 13th Part 5, which are not great films, but I had so much fun, I wanted to see more. So I kind of look at slashers as okay, you know they're going to go by formula. How fun is it from, get, from getting from A to B to C? Right. This movie is a lot of fun, and it's just a, it has this strange little difference about it than other things. And there's also, like, um, a thing I enjoy about Halloween is, like, the claustrophobia of yes. just being in this neighborhood and never seeing a city. Um, I love that. That's one of the reasons Halloween is one of my all-time favorite films. There is like a little claustrophobia about being surrounded by all these partiers. Well, that's through Skip. Yes, yeah, because through Skip. Skip is there, and yet he's alone. And Gail. Yeah, Gail. Too, and she's yeah. the same way, which yeah. is what means that those characters are eventually going to be drawn together, regardless. Yeah. Yeah, and see, I, I like that element of it, but it's just a fun little slasher. It's, it's you don't expect anything great from it. It's not going to be. It's not going to blow your mind, but it's you're got some, have a lot of fun. And it's going to be, yeah, you're right. It's going to be fun. And it's got a couple of surprises in store for you. Yeah. It zigs a couple of times when you think it's going to zag. And it really is, I like I said, I, I asked you earlier, and it was certainly true of me. I did not know who the murderer was before it was revealed. It did not occur to me. Unless you're super observant, you really have no idea who it yeah. is. So when you finally see who it is, you're like, wow, this is this is a big surprise. The, the, the identity of the killer does, though, link it back very strongly, once again, to the giallo. And that's all I'll say. Now, uh, one thing I want to break break out here on the end is, if you really think about the movie, the only time you ever see any TNA is in the stock footage. You never yes. see any from the actors themselves. This is very true. Uh, and that is... That's why I made when I was writing my notes. I did point out that it seems the only way they really got any actual nudity into the movie was in those those uh, wet t-shirt concept con- yeah, contests. That was it. That was it. The only p- person you see even scantily clad is really the the clever prostitute. Yeah, and she's just in underwear. Yeah, but that's yeah. it. You don't. Nobody gets naked except for the people in stock footage. Who who knows if they ever saw the movie? If they ever paid them for it? There's never even a sex scene in the movie. That is correct, which is very strange for a slasher. Yeah, well, by the late 80s, I think it was becoming... later. Definitely by the early 90s, those were going by the wayside pretty heavily. Yeah. There, was a, it was a, there was a massive backlash about that kind of stuff. Once you know, It all started with the, uh, the creation of the PG-13 and, and trying to divide that line between R and PG-13 and, and trying to figure out what would get you one and what would get you the other. 
And so a little nudity would probably end you falling over the line. So if you were going to do it, you just might as well go full bore. But it's an interesting time. The late 80s were especially an interesting time for these Italian productions. And like I say, I used to look down on them and, and really not even pay that much attention to them. But now... I really enjoy them. It's like discovering a different flavor of something you already like. Yeah. And uh, I agree. Nightmare Beach is an example of that. Uh, first time I watched it, I was like, wow, you can really you can see the seams of the different things they were trying to incorporate, and it doesn't always fit. But I certainly was entertained for 90 minutes. I never felt the, the desire to walk away from it or to kind of roll my eyes at it. Like I say, even the elements that uh, would be considered, quote-unquote, cheesy these days... Like the the special effects, you know, the, the burning dummies and things of that nature. I, I get a I get a thrill out of that kind of stuff. I enjoy I enjoy that. Me. I like it. I would like to say, by the way, that I managed to get through this entire podcast without mentioning your actual name. You can hey. you're you're still a pseudonym as far as the bloody pit is concerned. So congratulations. Yeah, I have to do that because of my corporate job. <laughs> I should probably have done it from the beginning, but it's way too late for me now. Oh no, it's totally fine. Um. Can you believe you've actually spent probably two hours or more talking about? Oh yeah, this movie. Oh, I, honestly, man, the the amount of enjoyment I got out of this film itself, I could keep talking for another couple hours just because there's a lot of details to dig into. And if we start if we started screwing around with the spoiler territory, trust me, I've got like yeah, a whole other line of thoughts yeah to talk about. But I just want to say, uh, if you're the least bit interested about this movie and you haven't seen it yet. We recommend that you do. I actually yes. do recommend that you do. And I've got to listen to that that commentary track on the new Blu-ray. And uh, the Blu-ray transfer is very good. Yeah, I have to say that the, the how I was watching it is I have the previous Blu-ray release uh, from England, the, the British release, which does not have that uh, commentary track. And, man, sounds like I need to check that out. So, folks... Thank you again for listening. Uh, if you enjoy this, let us know. The, uh, the the show can be reached at thebloodypit at gmail.com or over on the Book of Faces where the Zuckerberg reigns supreme and decides who the fuck is going to be president. My name is Rod Barnett. I'm Bobby Hazard. And if you liked anything I said today, I do a thing called Spring Break Forever podcast. Also on the Face pages. We have a Tumblr page. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And uh, we're on iTunes and all the other stuff too. Uh, it hasn't been super busy this year because my personal life has been insane. But uh, yes, it has. We will uh, be picking up pretty soon. Thank you again, man. Thanks. Let's do it again. See you later. See you.